Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 121. So I'm trying something kind of new in this episode. So this is a, it's a normal Q&A episode. I am answering the questions that you submitted, except for during this episode, I have someone helping me. So my longtime podcasting friend, Srini Rao, was in town and I said, well, come on, come on down to the Deep Work HQ. We'll get you on the other mic here. And as I go through the questions, you can give some of your thoughts on those questions too. This was the original conceit I had for guest was instead of interviewing the guest, we will just have the guest help me answer your questions. And of course, along the way, we'll, we'll find out some more about the guest. And I kind of got away from that and I'm, I'm trying it again today. So I will be interested in, in what you think about this format. A little bit about Srini. His name might sound familiar. That's because he's the longtime host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. It's a podcast that's been around for a long time. He's done over a thousand interviews. If you've listened to it, and I've been on it, I think, four or five times, it's very narrative and story-based. So it's a very cool podcast. They just received funding from PodFund, the Series A round to build out a larger media company around all of this content and IP they've been generated. We get a little bit into that in the episode, but it was good to see Srini again. It was good to get his take on these questions. Two things to I want to highlight about the questions to follow, to, to look out for. One, at some point we do a question about note-taking. I, I give my standard response, which is pretty boring, about how I mark up books with a pencil. Srini is actually a master of a Zittelkasten-based system that he implements in MIM. Listen to what he says about how he takes notes on books. This maybe it turns me around. I may actually start doing this. So this is, this is one of the cases where, where someone's tactics has turned me around. I was very interested. In particular, I love this idea that as a writer, he no longer tries to write a set amount of words each day. He instead uh, aims to process a certain number of notes in his note-taking system each day. That the, the processing, the filling out, the connecting of notes is, is a physical manifestation of thinking. And that's what he wants to do is think through ideas and clarify ideas every day, not necessarily write. I like that. It kind of dovetails with my my essay I wrote a few months ago called In Defense of Thinking, where I downplayed the importance of just writing as the main way of thinking. Anyways, keep an eye out for that answer because he's kind of turning me around with his note-taking strategy. But the other thing to keep an eye on is if the name sounds familiar, uh, Srini was on this Netflix reality show called Indian Matchmaker. I don't know when that came out, like last year maybe or something like this. I asked him about it at the end. I'm not so much interested in what his experience was like, uh, his appearance on the show, but just about the mechanics of how reality TV is formed, what's it like to be on the other side of the camera in a Netflix show, and what it tells us more broadly about the evolution of media as the production values become more accessible to amateurs like me, as more and more people can produce content that gets closer to the levels of these reality shows, what's that going to do to the media landscape? So that that's an interesting thing I talk about at the end, so you might want to uh, keep your attention open for that. Okay, before we get going, I also want to mention something about guests more generally. I have not yet started systematically going out and recruiting guests. I am going to do that. You know, I, I set up this Deep Work HQ now with multiple multiple mics. I'm going to, the lights are being installed next week. So I'm doing another national TV thing from the HQ, so I want to get the, the lights installed first, and the cameras can be installed. And so basically, I've been waiting to systematically start inviting guests until I can get 
good video and have a good studio setup. So I'm almost there. And then once that's the case, and it's not going to be every week, but then I can say, okay, what type of guest do I want? What content do I want them to talk about? And, and some virtual, some in person, and figure that out. And that means every guest I've had on so far is incidental. In the sense that they're, in every case, it's just a friend of mine who's like in town or, or we're talking. And I say, yeah, let's jump on the mic and we'll talk. All right. So I do get some notes about like, huh, there's, there's an interesting there's not a really a, a smart pattern to the guests you have. It's sort of the same guys. It's all guys. It's all authors. And yes, this is only because I'm not actually recruiting guests yet. It's just my friends I occasionally have on. And as a guy, my friends are mainly guys. As an author, my friends are mainly authors. So just to put that note out there, once I start officially bringing guests on as part of this podcast strategy, we will have a broader array of the backgrounds that guests are from, a broader array of genders for sure, and a broader array of topics that we talk about. I don't want you to think that the the goal for guests on the show is to have a bunch of 30 to 40-year-old male authors on and that's it. That's just who my friends are because I'm a 30 to 40-year-old male author. So look out for that. We're almost there to that point where the studio can support nice video of guests and then then I'm going to start concentrating on, okay, what's the most interesting variety of people to have on? So I just wanted to give that disclaimer, uh, just to give you a little bit of insight into, into the way I've been thinking about that. All right, that is a enough intro. Let's get rolling. This is me and Srini Rao answering your questions. Srini. Thank you for uh, venturing into the uh, Deep Work HQ here. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I was thinking, I've talked to you so many times, it doesn't even feel like I'm meeting you in person for the first time. It is weird how much we identify people with voice. Because I've been talking with you since probably 2014 or something like this, since the early days back when your show had a a different name. Yeah. And yeah, I meet you. I'm like, oh, yeah. Of course, I'm Shrini again. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah, I think more people know my voice than know my face. It's kind yeah. of bizarre, like how well people know my voice. But that's, I think, the the nature of audio. Th- this is one of the reasons why I read my own audiobooks because I remember, you know, sometimes um, people are like, "Oh, do you want to read the book?" Did you? I don't know if you read your own books, but I hate it when authors don't read their audiobooks, especially if I know them. Yeah. it really annoys me because I'm like, "Wait a minute!" This so you're is saying so I, have to, I have to do this? Is what you're saying? I'm, people like the sound of your voice, so you should absolutely do it. <sighs> I know. I should. I should. I, I like having the professionals yeah. do it. But then someone told me the other day, uh, they're like, "Look, I was listening to the audiobook of one of my recent books." And they're like, ah, oh, the narrator does this weird high-pitched voice <laughs> for all of the females that are quoted in the book, and it's yeah. really annoying. I'm like, okay, maybe I do need to well, exert some control. That's the one thing I remember when somebody asked me. I said, well, look, I'm a podcast host. The primary thing that people identify it. You, have, you, you have to read yeah, I, yeah, me not people reading know my own audiobooks would yeah. be insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so you're saying the podcast has just cost me three days in the studio next time I, I have pretty to much. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, the, the premise here is we do questions mm-hmm. and uh, the audience should know. And Srini will back this up. He has not seen any of the questions <laughs> in advance. And so this should be a surprise, but let me start with asking you a question just so we have a little bit of a background here. You host this podcast. As I talked about in the intro, the unmistakable creative, you've been doing it forever. I mean, in podcasting terms, right? When did you yeah, start? 10 this? years ago. 10 so years ago. maybe even, well, so we're in 2021 now, right? Yeah. So we started in 2009, but not fully as a podcast. It was literally just an MP3 file uploaded to a WordPress site. Uh, mainly, so I'd started a blog as part of an online marketing or online blogging course called Blog Mastermind. And one of the lessons was to interview somebody. 
And about 13 interviews in, the guy who was my 13th guest, um, I had asked him if he wanted to you know, collaborate on a multi-author blog. And he said, no, you're not a very good writer, so <laughs> you should start a podcast and spin it out into a separate site. And about an hour later, I, with my limited design skills, mocked up a version of a WordPress site called Blogcast FM and said, is this what you had in mind? When do you want to start? I don't think that's what he meant, <laughs> but you know, I dragged him along for a couple of years. And then it became, I think, in 2014. So we relaunched it as Unmistakable Creative in 2014. So yeah, we've been at this now for, I guess, if we go back to 2009, now we're looking at close to 10, more than 10 years. Yeah. And, the, and the premise has been basically the same the whole time. Well, no, not really. So initially when we started, um, because I was in that blogging course, that it started out as interviews with up-and-coming bloggers. Um, I think even in our initial conversations, it was usually we're talking about to bloggers who just happen to have expertise. Oh, in so when I did blogcast, which I did, I think yeah, my original interview sure was blogcast.fm. Were we talking about study hacks or something like this? We we're might have been yeah. talking about the blog itself, yeah. um, but I'm sure your work came up. And then in 2000, in 2013, the conversations started to evolve quite a bit. One, because I was bored of talking to bloggers about how they increased traffic to their blogs. I'm like, this is mind-numbing. Guest post. Or, yeah, exactly. We're, we're going to do an hour on blog rolls today. Exactly. It was just like, nobody wants to hear this. Yeah. And so when we started looking at that, and my mentor, Greg Hartle, uh, asked me, he said, what are your favorite interviews? And he said, none of them have anything to do with growing a blog. He said, all those are great stories. And we did probably the most counterintuitive thing that you should do for market research. We said, okay, let's not ask our audience. Let's go find somebody who we knew listened to the podcast who was completely separate from yeah. this whole world, like a friend of mine who's an engineer at Stanford. And I asked him, what are your favorite interviews? Because I thought he was much more representative of the population at large than our little sort of, you know, incestuous yeah. eco-circle. Bloggers, yeah. Yeah, of blo you know, circle of bloggers. And so he told me the same thing. He said, I don't care about the ones that are about growing blogs or whatever. He said, I like the ones where you have really good stories. And we figured out that, wait a minute, you could get that out of anybody just by changing the way that you ask questions. So like you've noticed, even as, yeah. as our interviews have gone on, they yeah. change every time. Um, and we rarely start with talking about your work. We almost always have topics that have nothing to do with your book. Yes. Um, mainly because I think that to me, you know, there's no point in having an interview if all I'm going to learn is what you wrote about in the book that defeats the purpose of the interview. I yeah. want to find out the things I couldn't from looking at your LinkedIn profile, from looking at your resume. And this is where I think a lot of podcasters go wrong. I always say, you know, keep those bios short, you know, don't read them on air, do what you do. Like, you know, uh, like we don't read anybody's bios on air. It's like the bios in the description. If you really want to know this person, go look them up. Yeah. Just get to the interview. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it just started to evolve because one, it wasn't just that, but if you look closely at the sort of top 100 shows in iTunes, Every one of them is a storytelling show. You, you mean notice right, it, right now or when yeah, you were, yeah, I mean generally. Right. I mean it all yeah. and it's always been the case. It's a lot of serialized podcasts. You sure. notice it's yeah. none of the people from our ecosystem who are ever in the with the exception of maybe Tim Ferriss, and it's only because his audience was so massive. Yeah. But it's rarely that, hey, I'm interviewing some online marketer about, you know, how they market their thing or grew their business. Yeah. And so my focus was always on storytelling because I knew that that could be done at a much bigger scale. Yeah. And also the content would stay timeless. So that's the thing. Even though you talked about things like deep work, digital minimalism, um, and even world of email, conceptually, all those things will still be relevant five years from now. Yeah. Um, like I can air episodes of yours, and I know this, we have, and sometimes they'll be more popular than our newer episodes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's shifted a lot over 10 years. And how many have you done? So rumor has it, somebody calculated it for an article they wrote about me. I think it was, the guys, a podcast movement. It was about a thousand. thousand. Yeah. yeah. So who, who of all those people... Were you the most nervous? Um, 
That's a, so it's interesting because like I stopped getting nervous about interviews quite a while back. Because yeah, the, the oh. answer might be like your second guest, no, just because no, no. it was so new. It yeah. wasn't the second guest. The yeah. guest that made me nervous the first time, and he still does, is Seth Godin. Because Seth is one of those people where you have to be able to ask really smart questions to get good answers out of him. Yeah. And if you don't really think about your questions in advance, you can definitely get thrown for because Seth is one of those people. He's like so quick and so smart. Yeah. Literally. I think he's the most intimidating podcast guest oh, because you want to find things like, how do you get something out of a guy who's written a blog post every day for, you know, God knows how long. And it seems to be a wealth of knowledge and that knowledge is all publicly accessible everywhere. And the challenge is to find something that he hasn't said a thousand times. And I think that's what makes him one of the more challenging interviews. But everybody else, I'd never really been intimidated by because, um, one, I was a musician in high school. So I learned how to get over stage fright because my high school band director told me, he said, look, nobody knows when you screw up. The only person that knows that you screw up. And I was a soloist. So he said, nobody will know the difference. Just keep playing. So that always stayed with me. And then I got to the point where I think my guests are more nervous about me as a host than anything because they know that I have ruthless standards. Like everybody knows that I will cut interviews in the middle if I don't like how it's going. Yep. Um, I will ask guests to do multiple takes. And so I don't send questions in advance. And even if I do, I always say, hey, I'm happy to send you questions in advance. Just know I'm not going to ask you any of these questions. So it'd be not worth your time. <laughs> yeah, to I can come up with something. Yeah. 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 That's the way to do it. And then you raise money. So what's, yeah. what's the vision here? Um, so we raised a seed round in pod fund, right? Yeah. Pod fund. Yeah. So funny enough, there's a woman who was writing ad copy for us and she said, Trini, have you heard about this thing? And, um, pod fund basically was looking for emerging creators. And I remember just looking at the criteria thinking this describes us in a nutshell. I mean, we have revenue, we have a proven business model, we have a proven audience, um, and we should at least get an interview. And so I, you know, while everybody else, um, you know, to, to credit to you since, you know, you've been such an, a vocal critic of social media while everybody else was in the pod fund or the podcast movement, Facebook group talking about what they would do with $50,000. I went and filled out an application because I knew exactly what I would do with $50,000. Yeah. Uh, so I basically filled out the application. We got an interview a week later. Um, they said, you know, we want to talk to you. And then coincidentally, the investors happened to be visiting LA and I called one of my, my listeners who also happens to be a mentor. I said, hey, we, we got an interview. And he said, of course you did. I said, what do I do now? And he said, go to Y Combinator's website. They have a pitch deck template and fill it out. It's seven slides. And he said, just make sure you have a few gra- graphs that are going up and to the right. <laughs> yeah. you know, because at that point- Not, not stable yeah, and then slowly turning down. At that down. point, yeah. you're basically looking at just you know projection. You're kind of saying, okay, this is what we think we can do. Yeah. Um, but I had always had that vision from the get-go for what we pitched PodFund, which was- Look, we want to do more than just build a podcast. We want to turn this thing into a full-blown media company where we take this one show yeah. and we create offshoots, you know, animated shorts, um, you know, ebooks. I mean, we can do so much with this content. So we've done it. We did an animated series with Soul Pancake. So the the great thing about going into funding rounds like that is instead of just saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do with your money, we literally had evidence of all the things we would do with their money because it's like, we've already done these things. You're just going to help us do it at a much bigger scale. Yeah. Um, so we were really lucky in, in that we happened to be one of the first, you know, pod fund portfolios. And it's definitely nerve wracking because you first see more money than you've seen ever in your bank account. And you also at that same time have to realize like, okay, this isn't mine. And, you know, that's like this constant sort of tension of, okay, I have a job here. One is to, there's a paradox almost because the very things that have gotten you this far are also the things that you start to have to keep in check, like the ability to take risks. So it's this balancing act of being 
smart enough to realize you now have metrics. Because remember, you and I have talked about this. You said metrics are a double-edged sword. Yeah. And they can influence the way that you yep. th- you know create, the way that you behave. And they matter, particularly yeah. when you've raised money. But you don't want them to matter so much that you compromise the integrity of what you're doing. And I have always had a sort of line of, I will actually choose a guest in service of our listeners, even if it comes at the cost of my metrics, because I think that's still the most important thing. Over the long run, that's what's going to matter. Yeah, yeah, metrics are killer. Yeah. Uh, it's my greatest secret as a writer is I never figured out how the author portal works. So just like occasionally my editor or my agent will be like, here's how it's going. I'm yeah. like, all right. <laughs> I, I can tell you how many books I've sold. I don't know where my books are ranked on Amazon. I mean, yeah. I checked, I think, like for about a month after the books came out. And I started getting really depressed because it wasn't doing as well. I was like, all right, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going to look at this anymore. Let me just get back to work. It always suppresses me. Launch week. Yeah. Looking at Amazon. I, 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 I had a friend who literally sat and refreshed his Amazon rankings the day his book came out. He just sat in front of the computer. People were like, what did you do today? I was like, well, I wrote a thousand words and I went to the beach to surf. Yeah. Like and it, I didn't look until the evening again. If the book's going to be a runaway, you'll find out yeah. basically. It's, exactly. it's not going to be like, well, it was here. And then there was just like, suddenly it started going down. It's like, if you're going to James clear it, yeah, exactly. it's just going to be, well, James clear. You guys, it's going to be on the he chart. Literally just, you'll know. You know yeah. Sent one email to his list. I know this because he and I have the same literary agent. And she told me on the first email, he got 6,000 pre-orders. Like, that was a guaranteed New York Times bestseller. Yeah. He also did 80 interviews to launch on the week. Wow. Of, of launch. Uh, James Hustles. He knows what he's yeah. doing. That was a great book. Was well, a great not book. only yeah. that. But I my mean, point is. To line up 80 interviews all. Because it's yeah. really hard to get everybody to air your interview. Yeah. The week, especially the bigger podcast. Yeah, the guy like, works. I had, I remember I had, you know, you and I have both probably been on Jordan Harbin's show. And I was like, okay. And he didn't air my interview until about a month and a half after my book came out. I was like, okay. Because that's the unfortunate thing about bestseller lists and things like that is that it's all about you know what can you do in launch week not over the long haul yeah and it's all nowadays it's all about uh first first interview first rights yeah right for a lot of the bigger shows we got to be number we we'll do it if we can be number one yeah and, and nobody else your, can air during that time and either. no one else can and no one else can yeah. air during that time yeah all right well let's let's solve other people's problems i don't know if you're, <laughs> I don't know if you're ready for this yeah, we got a couple questions here i'm sure right. so I, I i split them up we do some questions about deep work we cool. do some questions about just the deep life more generally, but it all overlaps. Um, all right, here we got someone, Chris. Chris is asking about self-publishing. He says, self-publishing on Amazon as my side hustle, making 3 k a month. What do you think about that? Well, I think I'm uniquely qualified to speak on that I subject. I chose this for a reason, Chris. Yeah, you're talking about <laughs> someone who knows about this. First of all, 3 k a month is... It's doable. Th- that's... that's uh, now, I think he's saying he's... Um, if he's earning He's that? doing that already. That's, so that's very different that's than talking impressive. to someone who's just thinking one day I might self-publish a book. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, 3K a month if you're self-publishing, that's solid. I mean, because one, with the sheer volume of books that are published, that's hard to do. And a lot of self-published books are really awful because yeah. there's no editors involved. There's no cover designers. I mean, it's just somebody who randomly throws up a bunch of thoughts. And I can tell you somebody who did that more than once yeah. that the you know my initial self-publishing efforts were kind of laughable. Um, but then I had one that was kind of just this crazy freakish runaway success uh, because Glenn Beck of all people found it and was loved this, it. Was this before the original unmistakable creative book you did with, with portfolio? Penguin. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. that book was what led to the book deal. I see. Um, personally, I, I think for any aspiring author in nonfiction, I completely disagree with people who say that self-publishing damages your credibility and all that. You, you don't have book, any credibility anyways if you yeah. haven't, haven't published anything. And it's funny because Art of Being Unmistakable, which to this day is still my most popular book, 
has probably tons of typos in it. It's not particularly well organized. Yeah. I mean, even my editors at Penguin said, you know, when they looked at it, they've acquired the rights. And my editor, Stephanie, sent a note saying, I wanted to talk to you about the structure. She was like, there isn't one. <laughs> I said, I'm aware, because it was just a bunch of Facebook status updates compiled into a book, which I think goes to the point of it doesn't really matter what the format is. It doesn't matter if it looks all pretty. If the content resonates with people, then it's going to resonate. And when something has resonance, then it has the potential to spread. So what are the economics here, though? So I don't know that world. And when they say self-publishing nowadays, is this mainly Kindle ebook? Kindle ebooks. So you can do Kindle ebooks. You can do create space. So typically the way it works is... Which is is on-demand printing. You get a physical book, but there's no inventory. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So typically the way it works is if you price anything above two ninety nine, Amazon gives you seventy percent of the revenue. Because I remember the day before I went on Glenn Beck, I went and <laughs> updated the price. And what were you charging for the art? The uh, art of- originally it was a dollar ninety nine, and I, I put it up to two ninety nine right after because right. we only had a Kindle version. And my friends always tease me like, "Don't you wish you just priced it a dollar higher, considering you sold fifteen thousand well, copies?" Well, that's of nice. It. So you get two bucks basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah two yeah. bucks a book at two ninety nine. Yeah. So now you're getting a hardcover royalty. At a two ninety nine, at a two nine. That's why you see so many two ninety nine books. Yeah, interesting. No, it's yeah. that. That's actually one of the reasons because of that seventy percent royalty. We were also really lucky. Like you know, Glenn Beck. B- between the fact that he had a massive presence, it was a really inexpensive book. Like two ninety nine is kind of like, oh, this is a no brainer. I'll just do it. You know, yeah. I don't have to think about it. So I think that book hit number seven on all of Amazon for about a day or two. And uh, but the economics of it, I, I I think the the thing that works really well one. If you're going to do it and do it well, you need to have professional editors. And that's the thing now, having gone through the publishing process, if I were to go back and do self-publishing, there are certain things that are really good about the traditional publishing process. One is that it teaches you process above all things. You understand how to carry, you know, an argument over like a coherent arc narrative, you know, because that's the big difference between a blog. So, you know, this has a blogger, you can write about one thing this week and you can write about something else next week. But when you're writing the book, everything has to do with that theme of the book. And the editor makes sure of that. Yeah. The number one question my writing coach Robin asked me the entire time we were writing Unmistakable is what does this have to do with the theme of Unmistakable to the point where I started to hate the word Unmistakable. Now, let's say that, let's say the titles, we'll get them correctly. So the original self-published Version of the book was called the art, art of being unmistakable. Of being mistakeable. and then the my memory's the actual book was called the unmistakable. No, so no. the second one was called unmistakable. Why only is better than best. Yeah, okay. um, and then the uh, the right. last traditionally published one was an audience of one, which I really liked. Yeah, yeah. audience uh, of one. Some it's, it's funny that sold that much better. Yeah, you did. Yeah. That one actually sold way better than the other two. Yeah, um, and partially it could be just because people know me. The other thing is it could be that it just resonated more. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and the topic is yeah, this is the right way to think about creative output. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Which, which, uh, the message obviously resonates today because when people are thinking about creative output, they're thinking about. I mean, everyone's covered in metrics. Yeah. Like, well, what about likes? What about retweets? What's going on with this? Is this number moving up and down? Yeah. And, and that's I mean, why, and those numbers, I ultimately I realized are effectively meaningless. You know, we yeah. were just talking about you know sort of book deals and people with large social presences and how their social presence actually has almost negligible impact on their ability to sell books. So um, we had another friend who had a book come out, I think right before Atomic Habits, maybe six, seven months before. Um, and she had this wildly popular blog um, that, that, you know, when she would put stuff on Facebook, her posts would get hundreds of shares, uh, which you'd think, oh, hundreds of shares, like this woman should be able to move books. Yeah. She never, I think she hit, she maxed out at about 2000 copies. And yeah. James Clear sent one email and sold 6,000 copies. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something funny. When I first got into publishing, this was, I was just turned 21 years old. I was selling my first book to, this was Random House at the time before Penguin merged with it. And it was, and I remember talking to editors, would have been 2000 and, 
2003, right? 2003. And they're talking about, okay, here's other books in this space of college student aimed books. And this one they really liked, like, man, this guy has a big email mail mailing list. Like this is what it's all about. And since then we went through this whole period of like, well, now there's social media and there's Twitter followings and Instagram followings. And you know what the publishing industry has ended up again is where they were in 2003. Oh, email list. Like that converts, you know, because I guess people have bought in. (laughs) Like I have bought into like, I really like what you have to say and I want to read what you have to say. I think it clicking subscribe to that email list is a very different thing than what it means. The contract I'm making with you when I say follow, when I say follow, it's, I don't know. I saw something funny. Yeah. Throw it into my newsfeed. Maybe something else funny will show up or something like that. But I just, this has been the demonstrable case that the conversion rate on followers and social media is, is garbage, basically. Yeah. I mean, for any medium, right? So even podcasts, if you look at sort of people who start podcasts, people think that certain people like Pat Flynn or, or Lewis has all these people like just came out of nowhere. And this is one of the things that really pisses me off about how these guys go out and like Pat Flynn in particular says, oh, everybody should start a podcast. One of the things that's left out of that story is an important piece of context, which is Pat Flynn had a massive email list that he could tell about his podcast. Like, that's hugely important. You cannot neglect that yeah. when you're giving people this advice. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if, if, for example, Tim Ferriss, it's like, why is Tim Ferriss' podcast so popular? It's like, Tim Ferriss already had an audience of a million people he could tell about the podcast. That helps. And he was early. Yeah. And, and he was early to the idea that uh, you can have on TV quality guests. Yeah. Onto a podcast. Like he was just, he was early on that. Like, oh, have on famous people. And, and yeah. He has access to famous people because, yeah. you know, his audience is big enough that most people will say yes to Tim Ferriss. Um, and rumor has it that the Tim Ferriss podcast, if you appear on that show, that's one of the biggest drivers of book sales. It'll do more for you probably than appearing on Oprah would. I want to take a moment to talk about one of the sponsors of the Deep Questions podcast, and that is our longtime friends at Blinkist. You've heard me say before, ideas are power in our current culture, and the best place to master new ideas is in books. How do you figure out which books to read? Blinkist. When you subscribe to the Blinkist app, you get access to short explainers in text or audio that take just 15 minutes to consume of thousands of top nonfiction titles. You want to know what's going on in Homo Deus? 15-minute explainers, oh, I got the big idea. What's going on with cryptocurrency? Let me get the 15-minute explainer of blockchain revolution, read it or listen to it right in my app. Boom, I've got the idea. And what I recommend is that you use these explainers to very quickly understand what's going in, going on, I should say, in some of these important top nonfiction books. And then you can figure out, oh, is this something I want to read in more depth or not? In some cases, the 15-minute summary is all you need. So you can, you can talk intelligently about that topic. And in other cases, you say, great, now I know this is a book I want to read, and then you can buy it. So it's a great way to filter the books you don't need to read from the books that you should. Blinkist really is a must-have if you want to navigate this world of rapidly changing complex ideas. So here's the good news. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com deep to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash deep to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash deep. Yeah, Just because that. Of, yeah. of how influential he is. Yeah. So, Tim, come, yeah. On, Tim, come on, Tim. I'm, talk, I'm talking to you here. Come on. We need you. We need you here, Tim. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that about Rogan's podcast, too, except for it, if 
they're talking about your book, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. He has a huge audience. So when he has on, you know, an author he really likes, he's like, I have you on because I love your book. Everyone has to read your book. Yeah. Surprisingly, that does, that, that yeah, does move yeah, a lot I of mean, copies. And, yeah. and t- the funny thing is we started before Tim Ferriss did, but you know, that, that, that actually just, you know, echoes the, you know, point of the email being such a big deal because Tim already had this huge audience built from all his books. The day he launched, he tells a million people, and Tim Ferriss skyrockets to the top of iTunes. And yeah, because so he was people early. Tim.blog was very early yeah. in blogging, uh, had a huge audience because he was, he, I mean, he had a lot of trends, and then he moved the podcast early. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, uh, here's my insider story on Lewis Howe. I've done his show. He's got the studio out in West Hollywood. Um, he's a sneaky good interviewer. Is he? That is why he is a, yeah, it's a, he is a, um, a pro at his craft, but he does it in a way that seems very, just sort of informal, hmm. but I, he's a sneaky good interviewer. So I'm, I'm a, I definitely have a lot of Lewis Howe stock <laughs> when it comes to podcasts. You never know like who's going to have the skill for it. Yeah. All right. So if we go back to Chris though, um, so 3000 a month, I mean, this is basically, he's replicating. This was probably your experience. If you did 15,000 copies at two ninety nine yeah. of the original ebook over about a one year period or an eight month period that probably if it spread out would working out to something like that, yeah. low thousands a month. Yeah. Okay. So Chris Trini was in your exact position. I think position. he's in a better position than I am because yeah. if he's been able to maintain that consistently, that that's huge. I mean, cause the thing is once the work is done, you yeah. actually don't have to keep doing much else because you're basically just building a catalog. So, I mean, if I were to do what Chris is doing, I would approach it as if I am building a publishing company. Yeah. So he needs a bigger vision. Mm-hmm. This is a proof of concept that he has some sort of voice yeah. or topic or content that's connecting, but you're not going to build a livelihood or a long-term company that's, out of just the self-publishing books. No. Let that be because you, you self-publish your book early. Yeah. Now you have a, a, a venture backed totally. media company. So now the question is what's next for Chris? So he has to figure out. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that if I were in Chris's it's a side shoes, hustle, should he quit? I would think about, potentially looking at it as, okay, do I have to be the only author in this imprint? Like, yeah. why can't I take on, you know, if I'm self-publishing books, why not bring on other authors? Why not build something? Yeah. And the question there becomes how you, how you basically compensate other authors, right? So like, if I wanted to start a publishing imprint, there are two major limitations for me. I'm not going to come to somebody like you and say, hey, Cal, we're starting Unmistakable Publishing. Would you like to publish your next book with us? By the way, Portfolio will give you a six-figure advance. I can't give you anything. Yeah. <laughs> will you sign with me? Yeah. The answer is going to be no. So, I, But I do think that the, the entire minimal, The minimalist industry, did this. Yeah. Asymmetrical press. Yeah. yeah. So they were trying this model. Yeah. I, I think... So the thing is, I think that a lot of people have tried this model. Belladonna is trying to... Yeah. I mean, they're a little more established, but it's like, what, 50% like, deal with the authors or something? Yeah. yeah. So the thing is, Disruptive. I don't like the idea of the author having to pay the publisher. I think that's lunacy. That's yeah. ridiculous. Um, what I want to do is basically start up, do a startup publishing company, basically where it's like, hey, go out and raise a round of venture funding and let's go head to head with the big five. Because once you've done a book deal with the big five, you have an insider knowledge of what the whole thing looks like. Yeah. That most people who are starting these self-publishing imprints don't necessarily know. Yeah. You know, like you and I both know all the flaws in the system, which there are dozens. I mean, the entire way they even acquire books is kind of questionable because- they don't look at the right metrics. Like when, you know, I hear an editor say, oh, you know, what's your social media following? I was like, it just makes me want to like cringe because I know that that's not going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, well, they want number. What can you ask? Uh, well, though, I will say what they do now is they build these business models. I remember you talking about yeah, that. Yeah, but it's mainly uh, based on past sales. 
Yeah, which is so, fine. I mean, and even that's hard to predict because you know, like I, I had know. fifteen thousand copies of Order Being was Unmistakable. I, I didn't even come close to that again. And by the way, I think they can make the model say whatever they want. Yeah, because there's so many assumptions that go into it. They're like, okay, I really want this author. They want to still justify and protect themselves by saying I built this model and we can justify it. But they just, yeah. you know, you tweak this number. It's, and well, I think publishing be, yeah. is a lot like venture capital in that you know, my yeah. joke is always basically what happens is they give people like you and me book deals, and then Tim Ferriss and Michelle Obama make up for the losses they take on everybody else. I read, you know, I read a book about that, the blockbuster effect, mm-hmm. um, right around the time Deep Work was coming out. Okay, and I was like, oh, and it and it was talking about the publisher. You know, I think I read Deep Work book. was the Hachette was the uh, the case study right? Uh-huh. The, and, and maybe even the Grand Central imprint where I was yeah. and I remember having a conversation with my agent after that because little known thing about Deep Work when that came out I was really just dis- I was disillusioned I mean there was no publicity uh, they had paid less for that book than they paid for So Good They Can't Ignore You wow. it wasn't really showing up even in a lot of Barnes and Nobles right I remember that at the time I was really getting to it I was like so, so people I know can't even go find how this how long was it before it actually took off I don't know it's a good question um, yeah it's a good question. Maybe a year or so. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's common apparently. So Ryan holiday is another example. His uh, obstacle is the way yeah. kind of just, you know, puttered along for three years and then somebody in the NFL found it. And after that, it was kind of off to the races. Yeah. Though he'll sometimes claim he would have been on the New York times, uh, bestseller list. If not for the fact that, you know, the, the marketing gimmick he did for trust me, I'm lying. Yeah. He got himself as a fake source in the New York Times and then came out and said, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about in my book about media manipulation. I manipulated the New York Times and quoting me as an expert, even though I'm not. That's how easy the media is to manipulate. That was part yeah. of his marketing campaign and he claims that that put him on a six-year blacklist basically because he was selling a lot of copies. I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. I mean, yeah. rumor has it. That, so you, that's the other thing with self-publishing. I sold 15,000 copies. I made the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. I couldn't make the New York Times yeah, New York because Times I'm has, self-published. Yeah, because it has, a, it has a bunch of other criteria yeah. Yeah, including like movement and in stores and stuff like totally. that. Um, and by the way, my business plan, tell me, is this a good business plan? Here'd be my business plan for starting up. Chris, you can steal this, okay? But Srini's going to evaluate this and let All us know right. if this is good. For starting up my own imprint. All right, you're going to bring in authors where you really... Or you understand the space, you have a feel in them, but what you're doing is it's, it's the deal is not just we're going to do your book. It's we're going to get your podcast going mm-hmm. and your podcast is then going to be a part of the network of the other podcast of the other authors that are in this imprint if there's like an online course angle aspect to it, we have all the tech there. It's going to be a basically full featured presence that's all synergistic together. So yeah. basically the book is one of three or four things. We got nice studios. There's going to be, you know, we can get you a good sounding show, a good whatever. We can get you a good show. We can get a good web presence or something mm. like that, right? Like somehow it's... Well, yeah. so I think the the way I would look at it just slightly differently, I think you're right about having this sort of holistic idea that the book is just a component of what each person does. Because if you think about, you know, if we go back to sort of the venture capital model, right? Like a venture capitalist, unlike an editor at a company, at a, a publisher, once they give you their money, they're going to try to hold you accountable to get that money back yeah. many times over. That's where I think publishing is wrong. They don't do everything they can to ensure that that book becomes a success. Now, that's not all VCs. There's plenty of VCs who will write you a check and you know you won't hear from them. They're useless. Yeah. But you know, as, as far as podcasts go, the one thing I would think about in terms of modifying it is to say, okay, what's the medium that is most aligned with your natural talent? Because I yeah. feel like there is— What are the other mediums? I mean, video could be one that might make more like sense. Like YouTube. Yeah, like yeah. YouTube might make okay. more sense. Yeah. It just Fair depends yeah. on whatever, you know. That's smart. The, yeah. So, you know, for example, if you're this incredibly talented visual artist or photographer, and this is something I've said before, 
what ends up happening is you dilute your efforts. So it's like, oh, I'm starting a podcast because everybody else is starting a podcast. And so you go from being this extraordinary visual artist to yeah. now, instead of being extraordinary at one thing, you're average at two. Yeah. And, you know, it's find, basically find the, medium, the opposite of so good they can't Find the medium that takes the thing that's generating heat in the first place and, exactly. and amplifies it. Find the medium yeah. that makes you so good they can't ignore you. Yeah, I like that. All right. Uh, so, Chris, it sounds like do that. Yeah. Like, and, and hey, maybe it's the books or right? who knows? It 3, could 3, be. 3K a month, it could be he's doing some, you know, 3K very- a month is solid. That's actually better than like 90% of people because yeah. I think people, one, people have a very skewed idea of how well people earn in our industry because one, anybody can make it seem like they're bigger than they really are, yeah. you know, with some good design, some fancy work, you know, a few media appearances, you know, people always think that I make more money than I do. Yeah. It's always a skew in that direction. People yeah. think, yeah, I had Jordan Harbinger on the show the other a couple of weeks ago and we were going through the economics of various shows mm -hmm. and he was giving us a reality check and this was just in podcasting, Yeah, but he was reality checking podcasting. Like, okay, that show's probably making this much money. We weren't doing names, but like these calibers of shows are only doing this much money. And this is how many shows are doing this much money. And I, that was, it was interesting well, to hear. It's, yeah. There's this woman who, um, she's the founder of a, a venture firm called Atelier Ventures. Um, and I don't remember her name, but she wrote a uh, article in the Harvard Business Review titled that, you know, the creator economy needs a middle class. And I'm um, for this. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so true because. And it, I thought, by the way, I started Jordan's podcast uh, interview thinking, podcasting might be offering this. I came away from that interview thinking, no, no, there, there, it's not. There is no middle class because the <laughs> it's, reality it's a winner is take all market. Again. It, it really is. It has a little broader top, mm -hmm. obviously than TV had yeah. or something like this, but it's kind of comparable to books is what I came away with. I yeah. think that basically what you have, and if I were to do another book with a publisher and I've been hashing this idea out as I've been taking notes was when I started looking at this creator economy idea, I thought, wait, we're living in a world of digital inequality. It's basically just a microcosm of the actual economy where, like you said, it's winner takes all. A handful of people get the bulk of the attention. It's just a smaller version of what happens in big tech where it's like four companies rule. What, 100 podcasts in iTunes probably take the majority of the revenue? On Patreon, which is one of the worst examples of this income distribution, the bulk of people probably make you know, enough to buy coffee every month. Right, and the rest goes to Jordan Peterson. Is that how the that's, economics work? That's, <laughs> it, that's a good way of looking at yeah, it. You know, yeah. Jordan Peterson and a few people uh, who have a similar size audience. Uh, but anyway, th but this is the issue of democrat democratizing entertainment channels is yeah. that democratizing access to the tool doesn't change the dynamics of winner-take-all e uh, economics, no. which is, which is Absolutely. Uh, if I have full access to everybody... I would much rather have the best person in this space. Having three people who are okay interviewers and listening to their podcast does not bring me the same value as listening to just a, the best interviewer in that space. And mm -hmm. so democratizing access to entertainment type channel uh, technologies, what it's really good at is uh, casting a wider net for filtering for talent. Totally. But the number of spaces for talent is really not that much more than when the, the technology was, well, it's TV cameras and you don't even get access to it. So you, you can get a more... Um, you can open up some more niches to get a more diverse array of people at the top. Yeah, but it doesn't democratize revenue. And no, I think it, that's the thing that it, just because everyone can blog now mm -hmm. doesn't mean everyone's going to make money on blogs. Just because everyone can podcast now doesn't mean everyone's going to make money on podcasts. Now you're going to have people you know rise to the top because blogs came along. You mm -hmm. had, for example, like Ezra Klein percolate up and like oh because blogs exist, we found this kid in California has real talent, and now now he's in you know op-ed columnist for the times and Vox yeah. and all of that or you you'll you'll get like a joe rogan running this empire whatever there's no way he would have uh obviously no i mean no tv network was gonna say great you're a new sunday morning show 
Yeah. You know, uh, so it's like democratizes the 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 search. You get a very wide net mm-hmm. that also probably makes it more competitive for everyone because you have a very wide net. But, yeah, yeah, no, well, absolutely. I mean, it, it basically goes back to the whole idea of, of so good they can't ignore you, which basically is like this is not neg- like this is not optional. Yeah, it's a necessity because what you're up against is the entire world. You're up against people who have plenty of talent, um, and so and then the other issue with this whole creator economy thing is. We don't have an ecosystem the way startups do. So, for example, tech startups have incubators like Techstars and Y Combinator. And the problem is, if I'm Paul Graham and I have the choice to say, you know what, I'm going to make an investment in Cal Newport's Deep Questions podcast, maybe I'll make some money, or I can invest in Drew Houston's Dropbox that'll make me a billion dollars, no brainer, I'm going to invest in Dropbox. And I'm saying that as somebody who is in the creator economy. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so... uh so, Chris, you don't try to become the, the next Tim Ferriss, but find the technology that best amplifies what's going on here. And it could be books. I mean, yeah. I don't know. He could be publishing very technical uh, very yeah, technical really books, just... like how to take, you know, whatever, better photos with your galaxy, whatever, <laughs> whatever. And then maybe, so maybe that's even the best. But yeah. um, so, so, so amplify, Chris, but don't, don't dilute. All right. How about, uh, let's, here's, a, here's a work question that's a little bit more psychological. How to deal with job rejection. I am mm. a recent graduate. This is Bell, by the way. Sorry, Bell. I'm a recent graduate in humanities and finishing a master's degree. I'm looking for jobs. And so far, all the jobs I apply to have been unsuccessful. What is the best way to deal with rejection? How should the rejection fuel my motivation to look for jobs instead of pitying myself? Bell, let me just do my quick master's P- PSA. This is uh, I'm the bane of all master's programs in the country. But this is always my PSA about master's degrees. Before you sign up, for that master's degree that you're going to be paying for, you need to identify this is the type of job that I really want and I have evidence that this master's degree from this program is what is needed to open that door. <laughs> do not just do the degree thinking, generally speaking, I think this will open up options. You're making a lot of universities rich, but that's not the way to approach it. I don't know if that's what you did, Bell, but I'm using this as a as an excuse to do my my master's, my master's PSA. Um, okay, so she's on the market, Shrini. She's looking for jobs. Yeah. Unsuccessful. She has a graduate in humanities finishing a master's. Hmm. Well, let me, you know, echo your master's sentiment. I, mean, I got a, an MBA and I always said business school teaches you nothing about running a business. It teaches yeah. you how to be an employee in somebody else's. But so job search, no matter how, how you slice it, I know because I've been through exactly what she's going through. I graduated April 2009 in the midst of arguably the worst recession ever where we just knew we were like basically flushing our resumes down the toilet. So did I. You would, yeah, I, I signed up to be a postdoc. <laughs> that that was probably a better move than trying yeah. to find a job. Yeah. Um, so you would go into interviews where you know a thousand completely overqualified people would answer, and you know here I am, thirty years old, and they're like, "We'll pay you ten bucks an hour." It's like I made that at McDonald's. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily qualified to address the psychological components of it, which you know, I'm, she's not wrong. It is incredibly taxing to go through that. But what I can tell you is, the best piece of advice I ever got during that period was from a guy named Peter Bregman, and to this day, that was priceless advice. And he told me the worst thing that you can do when you are unemployed is to spend all of your time looking for a job. Yep. Which sounds completely counterintuitive, but. It made sense because during that time that I was unemployed, I started my blog, which eventually led to all the other things that ended up happening. Um, 
But it also gives you something that keeps your mind off of the fact that you're getting rejected from jobs you're struggling. Because if all you do is spend all your time looking for a job, then your entire focus is on the one thing that you think is wrong with your life. So basically, you wake up every day. It's like, this is what's wrong with my life. It just constantly becomes this reinforcing negative feedback loop. Whereas if you have something else that adds meaning to your life, even if it's not something that might open the doors to a career you end up discovering you know, a lot of things about yourself that can be valuable. So for example, that was a period in which I became an avid surfer and it made that period so much better because I was, I was actually surprisingly happy despite how much I was struggling to find a job. Yeah. Because uh, so that's one thing. The other place that I would look is to Oliver Meats at these stuff on you know, finding jobs, getting interviews. He's probably got some of the most well thought out um, constructive advice on all this. He has a course called Dream Job, and even his email sequence that yeah, he writes for the course yeah, is probably yeah. yeah, it's probably as good as the course. Like you can take his free material and probably find just as good a job as you could from taking the course. And rumor has it, people who take the course end up with really high salaries um, and do quite well. And I can tell you from having taken one of his courses. I took his copywriting course, and even though it was two thousand dollars, we made that money back in one launch. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'll never question buying anything from this guy now. Yeah, Ramit's the best. I've known Ramit forever. Yeah, yeah. he was the guy who introduced me to Tim Ferriss yeah. because he's an old Tim Ferriss friend. Um, yeah, I agree. That I remember when he did Dream Job. It's like a thousand bucks. Yeah, and I remember at the time. And being that's like, pricey if you're not if you're trying to find a job to spend a thousand dollars on a course. Yeah. And his uh, whole pitch is you're going to make so much more. And he, more he does money. offer payment yeah. plans. And the truth is, you know, Ramit's stuff works. He's not. He is. You know. He's had thousands of people go through all of his courses. Yeah, he gets uh, my stamp of approval. Yeah, I, I, yeah absolutely. I've, I've known him forever. Yeah. Um, that sounds good, Bill. And also, yeah, I mean, I think when you're at that level of education looking for jobs, there, there's sometimes a mismatch between the channels of, I'm going to send resumes to these positions that I've seen on websites where a lot of the hiring happens through connections. Yeah. A lot of it happens. There's a lot of firms, a lot of organizations, maybe things that wouldn't have been on your radar, maybe smaller companies that need some people. They're not necessarily advertising the place that you're going to see it, but they're like, we need good people. And Mm -hmm. if you're the value of being dependable, you've got your act together, you're organized, you're sharp, you have the training. I mean, there's always a need for it. It's just sometimes you have to I network your way into yeah, that. Yeah, and I, I always found that going through the front door is the wrong way to do it. Another person yeah. who has a really great book about sort of back doors um, and ways to get in, there's a guy, Alex Benayan, who was a college student at USC, yeah. who wrote a book called The Third Door, and he got somehow interviews with everybody from Jessica Alba to Bill Gates. Like, he got into Bill Gates' office as a kid who just graduated yeah. from college, so he knows a thing or two about how to navigate these. But I remember when I would look at LinkedIn or anything like that for a job back when somebody would actually hire me to work at a company— I would never actually, you know, apply through the front, you know, that the website. I would try to figure out who the hiring manager was, try to basically use Google or whatever it is to figure out that person's email address and then just email them directly because then you're going to bypass all one if you can bypass a recruiter, that's huge because that first filter alone can get you eliminated, not necessarily on, you know, like value like based on your qualifications, the recruiter might just check a box and say no. Whereas you might actually get the attention. No, you of the might actually manager. get in. Yeah. And I would add Bell do things. So, so obviously the high quality leisure, but things you can get involved with, even yeah. if it's consulting work, even if it's volunteer work, just be doing things around other people where you can be competent. Volunteer yeah. work is really great. Yeah. Tim Ferriss has talked to me about this. You know, he said that if you are willing to go and volunteer in an event 
and not just be sort of a lame volunteer like a lot of them are, but really go above and beyond, you'll be able to connect with people who are significant yet significantly higher pay, pay grades, um, like highly influential people. Instead of you know being on the committee, volunteer to run the committee, stuff like that. I yeah. mean, it was really one of those things. I worked the door at networking events when I couldn't afford to buy the tickets. Yeah, but this is how it works. You do something like that, and then someone's like, well, let's bring you on and, and, and do a little consulting engagement. You can help us with this project. We'll pay yeah. you hourly. And they're, they're kicking the tires. Because often a lot of small firms they, it's risky for them to hire someone. They really want to know if someone's going to work out and they bring you in the door. Uh, so Bell, keep doing things, doing things where you can, for yourself, but also professional yeah. things where you can show your competence, keep meeting people, keep talking to people. And yeah. And you also don't want to lose break. your momentum. You know, yeah. like that keeps you, one of the most dangerous things is stagnating. Um, even if it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere, yeah. just the fact that you're staying in motion, it can make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, or, or connect with Chris and start a podcasting company. That's the, that's the, that's the fallback. All right, let's, here's a kind of technical deep work question. Tom says, I'm an academic like yourself, and I have a ton of reading that I should be keeping on top of. How do you keep track of what you read, and how do you take notes in a way that's accessible when you need them? So, Tom, I'll, I'll give you my answer, and then Srini has a more complicated answer. Yeah. He, actually, he actually knows about Zytelkesten, which you guys all love. Zettelkasten? Zettelkasten. Zettelkasten. you pronounce it, yeah. Yeah, deep questions listeners are always telling me about uh, Zettelkasten. Yeah. Um, so, Tom, I'll tell you, if it's academic papers, when I'm working on a topic, so I'm reading an academic paper, usually on behalf of a particular topic I'm working on, so a paper I'm working on, uh, I try to get that citation right into the right format and the notes right into the skeleton I'm writing for the paper. So I'm, I, I use a markup, a markup language called LaTeX, uh, which is how you mark it's, a, it's how you mark up and write mathematical notation. And I will just start summarizing the papers right in the LaTeX markup document. I'll get the citation into my bib file right away so I can just cite it from anything else I want to do. And then for the books I read, and and you know, I average about five books a month, which is sort of a professional necessity. I mark the books directly. And I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but uh, pencil mark in the corner. If I'm going to mark something on the page, then check boxes, brackets, and underlines. If you do that, you can go back, and I've mentioned this before, and flip through a book, just going just to the marked corners, just reading the marked sections in a book, you can pull out the main ideas from a book in about six or seven minutes. Yeah. So I just do that. Uh, and this is different than, let's say, like Ryan Holiday, who spends a lot more time up front and is going to get all that information in the note cards and get these note cards in the trays, and I've seen them, and it's crazy. Uh, and it, then it's easier for them on the back end. But for me, it's all about friction reduction. And then I just grab books off my shelf. Um, I was just doing this today. I was fact-checking a New Yorker piece, and I've been citing some stuff from Walden, which I had read years ago for digital minimalism. I could pull my copy of Walden off and very quickly get to the parts I, I have I've marked. So I am uh, ad hoc Low friction. Okay. The opposite of probably what Srini's going well, to Believe it or not, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, the problem is, is, so you as an academic have been taught how to do research because you've had to write peer-reviewed journals. Like, yeah. that's not how we're taught to do research typically when we're writing, you know, the five-paragraph essay in school. And there's a reason there's no such thing as the Great American five-paragraph essay because we didn't write those things to be read. We wrote those things to pass tests. And so... Zettelkasten was something that I just discovered, you know, about a, probably about two months ago. I came across the the book How to Take Smart Notes on a lecture about smart notes. I don't even remember how I came across how it. How to Take Smart Notes. Right? Yeah. That's the book title. Yeah, yep. it's by Sanka Ahrens, who's a German guy. And he learned about this from uh, the work of Nicholas Luhmann, who is a social scientist, um, who was the son of a brewer uh, and basically, uh, where I think, worked for like the patent office somewhere. 
And somebody met him once and they said, you know, how would you you know, be interested in becoming a professor? And he finished a PhD dissertation within a year, wrote 30 books, published 500 papers, all using this Zettelkasten method. So naturally as a writer, yeah. I was incredibly intrigued. I wanted to know more about it. And so I started working with it. Um, and the premise is, is actually, there's a lot of similarities between the way you're talking about research and, you know, but I think it, the way that this works is it makes it way easier to find things and also make connections between your ideas, which is really where it starts to shine. Um, but there are basically three types of notes. Uh, so while you're reading, you, similar to what you do, I highlight and I underline things. And you might have some sort of marker, and this is similar. And you have, you can either put these at the beginning of the book, like with an index. I remember seeing a post that you wrote once about creating an index at the beginning of the book. But I keep a notebook with me yeah. uh, while I'm doing that. So I underline and highlight things at the end of every chapter or at the end of every 50 or so pages. I go into the notebook and I write down a page number and just a very brief like phrase to say, okay, what is this about? That's what they call a fleeting note. Those notes eventually will be thrown away. There's just a way to remind you of what is important. Those are not going to go into your database, and you can use different tools to do this. You could use Rome to do this. You could use Mem. Right. You could do this in Notion. You can. Do, it doesn't but really the, matter. But the original guy was all paper. Yeah. yeah, the original guy did it all on paper, and it looked very much like Ryan Holiday's. Um, he had note cards. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and there's a. And he had a way, system. a notation system. It was system. like card catalogs. Yeah, yeah, which I wouldn't have figured out how to do that. But yeah. now with bidirectional linking you know, and, and tagging, it's actually very easy to do all of this. Um, so then you take those fleeting notes and you create what are called literature notes. And this is really, really important. It's probably the most important part of this. And this probably echoes a lot of what you wrote in um, How to Be a Straight-A Student. So I realized this as I was going through the Zettelcast and, and, and understanding this concept of smart notes, I kind of had like a flashback to college. Um, one of my roommates said, you know, you must have been smart in high school if you're a straight A student. I said, no, you know, being a straight A student in high school doesn't indicate intelligence. It indicates discipline. Most people, if they just show up and do what the teacher says and memorize information well, yeah. they can get good grades in high school. That doesn't work in college. And you learn that really, unfortunately, the hard way because yep. nobody actually teaches you how to study. Uh, and I think you and I have talked about this before, but I learned this in, uh, you know, economics at Berkeley you basically, you know, you, you go to lectures, you do problem sets, uh, you know, you, you read the textbook and most college students are notorious for doing things like underlining or highlighting the entire textbook as if that's going to be of any use. And then what ends up happening is you think that you understand something and you go to the midterm and they present the same idea, but now you have to apply it to a context you're completely unfamiliar with, yeah. which is where it becomes very apparent that you didn't actually understand this. You yep. just tried to memorize it. So literature notes become really important because they're a way of rewriting whatever that insight is in your own words. Um, so that way you really demonstrate that you've actually understood it mm -hmm. because elaboration is like a critical part of this. And then after you write the literature note, you actually basically indicate inside the literature note what the source of that note was. Um, and you can actually put the original quote f that you basically paraphrased. Okay. Um, and then you have what are called reference notes. Now reference notes are basically, so for example, let's say you highlight and underline 40 passages from a book. The verbatim passages are your reference notes. The way I do this is, um, and I, I only read physical books, which people find that annoying because you think you have to type all of this. Well, now, thanks to an app called Readwise, I just go in and I take, uh, thanks to optical character recognition. Oh, sure, right, right. You get them right in there. You yeah. get them right into Readwise, yeah. and then you just export them to your note-taking tool of choice. So Readwise has a Rome integration, so you can yeah. export to Rome, you can export to Notion. Um, and so then what you do is you create a link from the literature note to the original source, which is your reference note. And in the process of creating literature notes, 
you're going to end up having insights and thoughts. Right. Um, and those become what are called permanent notes. And permanent notes are notes that you make or insights that you have. And somebody who reads those notes could understand them without having to have access to the original context. Right. So, St- you're drawing out standalone insights. That's a smart idea. You know, standalone and, insights inspired by what you're reading and references back to the book. Totally. But okay. Yeah, so standalone insight. But the, here's where the real magic starts to happen with the Zellcasting is when you're making these literature notes and you're having these standalone insights, what you can do is you can create you know links to related notes. You can just write the name of the note down yeah. without actually taking action on the insight. So basically, you can have insight without immediate action because you can't plan for insight. It's spontaneous. And that's where this starts to become really valuable. And the other thing that becomes apparent is that you start to realize that your brain isn't a hierarchy. So if you think about how we typically organize information, we organize it in hierarchies, like folders upon folders upon folders. You know, Typically, you go into Dropbox, and that's why people can never find anything. Yes. And not only that, there's no way to find connections between different ideas. Yes. And so when you start putting all these links together using you know, bi-directional linking or using tags, not only do you overcome this idea of having insight without, you know, without friction because you just create a link. So for example, let's just say I'm writing, you know, I could be writing something about deep work. I could take a note from deep work about, you know, let's just say that example of, you know, these are the two most important skills for thriving, you know, in the 21st yeah. century is like the ability to manage your attention and, you know, developing rare and valuable skills. And I could say, okay, and these are five of the most rare and valuable skills avail- you know, on the market today, yeah. that would be an insight. But the thing is I could write nothing about that and just create a link. And let's say tomorrow morning I wake up and say, okay, now I actually know what I want to write about. So no idea goes to waste ever. Yep. Interesting. Uh, and then using tags, you can tag things with topics, you can tag things, although it's recommended that you don't tag by topic because this was one huge insight is the guy said, you don't want to think like an archivist, you want to think like a writer. And so then you start to see that all these things have different connections between them. You realize your brain is actually a network, it's not a hierarchy. And you start to be able to make connections between your ideas. And the more notes that you add into it, so you know whether it's something like Rome whether it's something like Mem um, or any of these other sort of uh, network note-taking apps, the more notes that you put into it, the easier it becomes, the more valuable it becomes. And not only that, let's say, for example, I'll give you an example. So I have like 60 notes on decision-making. If I wanted to write an article on decision-making, now, instead of having to start the article from scratch with an outline and think about what I want to do, it's a bottom-up approach where I can say, okay, I have all these different notes. Let me yeah. compile them into one note. So the real work starts to become editing and really thinking through how you organize all of this stuff, which is way harder than just sitting down and writing. Right. But- so, well, so what should I do here? So I'm I'm working on a, a couple book proposals. I'm working on a book proposal. I'm mm-hmm. using Rome. Okay. So Rome is one of the softwares that allows you to create these notes and link them to each other with these links. Yeah. It, it kind of feels like wiki editing a little bit. Is, yeah, it is definitely it, is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could do this with a wiki. Um but I'm doing it very hierarchical. Mm-hmm. So I kind of have a page for the, yeah. the book idea I'm looking on, and I okay. do a lot of indented whatever. Yeah. I should be, so what should I be doing? I should be breaking things into separate yeah. standalone so, pages I'm linking to. So, so if my idea is like, okay, here's like something I want to tackle in this chapter, mm-hmm. make a standalone page for that, and then link to it from a outline page well, or something. I don't know that I would make a... St- you can have topic pages. That's yeah. one way to do it. So yeah, I, I one way to do it is to have different topics well, on... it's like list of ideas. Yeah. But I, mean, I just like that it's like very low friction interface. It's totally. just indented bullet points like rock and roll. That's, it's that's saved really automatically. What it yeah. is. And then the other thing is when you create these topic pages, because of the fact that you have these abilities to embed reference blocks, you can just go back and embed them all together right. into one page. But 
if I were to say, you know, let's use decision making as an example, just because that's the one that I was talking about. Uh, so let's say that you know you're going to write a, a chapter on decision making, and then you have you know a book that you've read. Let, just let's say you just read Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke, right? Yeah. And you've read you know underlined or highlighted ten different passages. Yeah. So what I would do is I would take each of those passages. I would create a literature note based on all of those passages for. A different note for each passage. Uh, yeah, see the, okay, but so rewritten in your own words. Because then That's when what you go back, see, what you're doing is, the, the, the funny thing about this is, I think the hardest thing about this is it changes the workflow that you're, you and I are probably used to. Like even I was struggling with this because I write a thousand words every day. And yeah. this negates the need for that, which is incredibly frustrating when I've spent 10 years writing a thousand right, words you're a day. An, an hour spent working Six on your notes, notes yeah is which which by the way i am i am infamous for i keep giving this advice that like stop using the word writing mm-hmm. in all these different fields as the primary and only activity I, I just put that on the record i was sort of infamous for i used to do a lot of these dissertation boot camps uh, at colleges in the area just to help grad students you know yeah. and everyone just talked about writing are you getting your writing hours make sure you write every day it's all about writing and my my infamous contribution is like well writing is part of that but there's like so much other efforts yeah. to producing a piece of intellectual output that's not literally writing why are we using the verb writing right because a lot of it is thinking you're trying to solve the thing exactly. you're trying to organize your thoughts and if when you get into the cult of just did you get your pages yeah like that's not it changes not that writing. whole yeah. workflow okay and interesting for me that was a struggle as somebody who'd primarily depended on volume and so when i saw this idea of wait a minute in six notes a day which is actually not that hard to do you read in the morning, you yeah. have some fleeting notes, and then you create... So if we go back to your Rome database, six right? Day. So six, some of this could be you going back to notes where you drop placeholders yeah. and working it through, and some of it is just dropping it. Could some of this be, okay, I read Andy Duke's book. Yeah. It's time I need to go back and start going through my highlighted passages and, and converting them. Well, and, yeah. The other thing is, right, if you go back and you rewrite these things in your own words, uh, you're going to have material that you can use in your book already. Yeah. So when you sit down to write the book, you're literally not starting from scratch or with yeah. a blank page. You have so much already written. Yeah. And so let's say, for example, you have your own insights or placeholders. You now don't have to think about, oh, I, an idea that you had you know, while you were going through this research process doesn't get lost. Technical question. You create a page for the book in this instance, and then so, you create a page yeah. for every idea. Exactly. Those pages link... The idea page is linked to the book page. Now mm-hmm. in Rome, there's a it shows you automatically everything that links to you. Yeah. So then, when if anything brings you to that book page, you then can very easily see everything that links everything to it, which would be it. yeah, that's interesting. So that's so Tom, that's interesting. So that's basically the next step off of what I'm suggesting is yeah. instead of just going back to that book later when you need it and pulling out the passages, is at some point after you finish the book process all those passages in the literature notes into a tool like Rome. You use MIM? I use MIM. MIM. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and just Notion. Notion, I think, if I understand it doesn't right. doesn't have the bi-directional linking capabilities. And, that has been there. That's why a lot of people have been ditching Notion. But it has all these other fancy it things. Does, you definitely. can create... Oh, I just turned on the light in here. I was actually just trying to plug in my laptop, but yeah. uh, I guess that was plugged into it. Yeah, for, yeah, for the viewer who doesn't know, there's all sorts of technical chicanery (laughs) (laughs) happening happening while we speak here um okay so that that makes a lot of sense so you use a tool like mim like notion i can start doing this tom i think yeah create a page for the book 
well, create I, a page I, for I every a idea. YouTube channel for Mem. I think if you just do unmistakable creative, the creative life or whatever, um, where I actually go into detail about this. Go um, to, and I did a okay. free webinar so for you Mem. Search for unmistakable creative on YouTube. Yeah, and okay. if you do, if you go to Mem's YouTube channel, I did a uh, webinar for them uh, titled "How to Build an Idea Factory Using Mem," because that's effectively what this starts to become is oh, a I'm factory for ideas. I'm gonna watch that. The, I learned Rome from uh, Thomas Frank. Yeah. Okay. So for for Rome, you can look at Thomas Frank, and for Mem unmistakable creative i like this i okay i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to do that i'll say here's my other i had a controversial article a little while ago called in defense of thinking and one of the arguments i made in that was um the focus on the first draft a little bit where this focus on writing is the primary activity of intellectual construction yeah and what a lot of people are doing with people just write that crappy first draft that's all that matters a lot of what you're doing is just a highly inefficient way of trying to work out ideas and connect them totally. but you're wasting a lot of overhead because you're also trying to make connective flowing prose but what you're really doing is probably you're cutting out the middleman tree and you're like I'm going to do six notes yeah. and a lot of time when someone is writing their crappy first draft what they're really doing is just working out their notes on things and then down the line like well I'll use that one and that one and went mm-hmm. in my in my final so yeah I'm, I'm not big on yeah, this pages. Is, I'm not big. So good. There's your new metric. Yeah, this Notes. is actually a really good way of of, of you know going. Like so somebody once said Smart the advice. the uh, best indicator of how prolific you are is the number of permanent notes you create per day. Yeah, um, which I thought is really interesting because now it definitely changes the way you read and write. And you, but then when you sit down to actually write an article. So recently I did this really extensive guide on conducting podcast interviews, which I wrote in, in different pieces. And it was about 9,000 words. Yeah. Um, and then there's another article I wrote about a book called little bets. And yeah. I remember thinking when I started mapping it I out inside the Zettelkast and that it would take me a week to write Sims. the article. Yeah. Peter Sims. Yeah. He, um, yeah so good. They can't ignore you. I talk a lot about, well, that bets. book is yeah. instrumental to every, like any creative person should read that book. That's on my must read book list. Yeah. Uh, but when you do that, what ends up happening is now that you have all these five or six different pieces, you go from needing a week to write an article to 45 minutes and everything's right there. You weren't looking out. at a blank Word document and saying, Word counts is zero. Yep, that's I need what, to get that to 9,000. Sentence one, let's go. You were pulling in. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Do, you, do you, know, you know the people who do MIM? Um, yeah, the, the founders, yeah. Okay, because here's, here's my pitch. Here's my pitch. Um, put in LaTeX markup capability into it so now when taking these notes you can have mathematics in the notes i will get you a giant audience in the world of mathematics because well put it in the future uh, request to them i'm sure if you tell them tell that them. i'll say Srini said you have to listen to but, me and, and while you're at that you know be like by the way Srini wants an equity stake in exchange for this <laughs> yeah and, and, well i think this is a five percent idea let's be honest i want to take a moment to talk about another one of our sponsors for sigmatic a wellness company that is known for its delicious mushroom coffee for sigmatic's mushroom coffee is real organic fair trade single origin arabica coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and shaga mushroom for immune support another way i like to use for sigmatic coffee is right before deep work blocks and the reason is is that it has a unique physiological footprint because of the lion's mane because of the shaga that whatever that does it's unique so your brain recognizes oh this is four sigmatic being drunk if you drink it every time for a deep work block your brain will form an association that physiological footprint means deep work time i guess we better concentrate i also like that it's a smooth cup of coffee it's a little bit lower caffeine than a normal cup of coffee so i'm not super jittery. I sip it real slow. Look, there's a lot of ways you can enjoy this coffee. It's a good cup of coffee. That just happens to be the way that I like to use it as my accelerant into 
deep work mode. Now, here's the good news. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee just for my listeners. You can get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. But to claim that deal, you have to go to foursigmatic.com slash deep. All right, so this is only for my listeners. You have to go to that special website address to get the deal. So again, you'll save up to 40% off and get free shipping if you go right now to F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash deep. I also want to talk about Element, spelled L-M-N-T. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means it's lots of salt, but no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. But basically anyone who wants to get those electrolytes up without having to drink seven cups of sugar, like in popular sports drinks, will enjoy this. I drink a lot of Element. I drink a lot of Element. Here's when I drink it. Uh, After a very sweaty workout, and it's August in Washington, D.C., so we can just abbreviate that as any workout, Uh, or if I'm dehydrated in the morning. The night before I recorded this podcast, for example, we went out for my father-in-law's birthday, seven-course tasting menu at a nice restaurant. I woke up as if I had never consumed water before in my life. A little bit of lemon habanero-flavored element mix in my water bottle, and I'm good to go to record. Look, this is stuff that's used by Olympic athletes, professional athletes, Navy SEAL teams. It's used by a lot of hardcore people, so I feel a little bit more hardcore when I drink it. But basically, it's a great tasting, sugar-free, hydration-boosting electrolyte mix. I like my element. I recommend you take a look, too. And hey, if you're not convinced, they have this great no BS customer service. You don't like it? Boom. Refund. All right, so to find out more and to order your sample pack, go to Drink element.com that's drink l m n t.com all right let's uh let's do some deep life questions um okay we got here Ooh, this one's deep speaking of deep okay uh carl says after obtaining the life i wanted i find it dissatisfying and i blame shrini oh no this is i'm <laughs> sorry about that yeah. this person said they blame you <laughs> yeah it was interview 400 yeah no <laughs> I I added that. I added that part. Okay. So Carl says, I find it dissatisfying. How do I trust a vision for the future? I work 35 hours per week as a surgeon, but I'm beginning to find it boring after five years of work. Uh, Endurance sports do give my life some zest, but overall it's kind of boring. I also have six kids between four and 13 years of age and have been married uh, for 15 years. There's a lot to unpack there, Carl. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, I mean, I'm doing the math on the kids, and so so. Are you sure you're not? Are you sure you're not just exhausted when when you say (laughs) you're you're bored? A surgeon with six kids—that sounds like an exhausting life for anybody. With some endurance sport thrown in there. Um, The Carl. Okay, here's where I'm going to start. Is again, longtime listeners hear me talk a lot about the deep life buckets. Right, which is again my scheme, my scheme for cultivating the deep life. So Srini hasn't heard this before. So here I we go. Either, You're hearing yeah. it for the first time. Where you you identify the different buckets that are important to you in your life. And it depends on who we're talking about, but we're always needlessly alliterative on the show. So we like to use C. So you have craft, 
Maybe you have constitution, we're talking about health, you have community, that type of connection. You might, um, you might have uh, contemplations, what we use for like philosophy or theology. And sometimes we use celebration in there, which is about gratitude and awe and joy of things or quality. One thing I'll say, Carl, is that when the buckets are out of sync, when they're out of balance, when maybe there's one bucket that got a lot of attention and then you're you're sort of putting a little attention in another and that's kind of it. When things get out of balance like that, the the structures tip over. And so I know to become a surgeon, that's a lot of time when you are focusing exclusively probably on that craft bucket. Right? There's a lot of energy going into that and the other buckets aren't getting aren't getting their time, aren't getting their attention. So now you're very precarious. And okay, you start to get a little exhausted. You you know you have the sixteen kids pulling at your attention. Like you're exhausted. The work is hard, and it's no longer the challenge of trying to. I want to get up to this position here and have this clinical associate professor's position. Like that challenge is kind of out there. One of the things we often talk about is we'll get the other buckets in line now. Before you start saying, well, let me just change what I'm doing in the one bucket that I put all of my energy. Then maybe that'll fix the problem. You know, what are you doing with the contemplation bucket? What are you doing with the community bucket? How are each of these buckets are you finding? This is something that really matters to me that I'm committing non-trivial time and attention to. Uh, And you put the keystone habit in place to show that you take the bucket seriously, and then you give it a couple months, bucket by bucket, to overhaul that part of your life. It seems to me that's step one Yeah. before we start doing dramatic... You can't dramatically change a bucket when the other ones have been completely neglected. Yeah, I think that somebody once told me, like, no one thing, like, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a, per, you know, a career accomplishment can be your sole source of meaning and happiness because yeah. it's kind of like... Who was it? It was a woman who wrote a book called How to Be Single and Happy, and she said it's a bit like a portfolio. She said it's like you're basically taking... Um, all your money and betting it on this one risky stock. And she said, you need to diversify your sources of meaning. And so that to me, that always stayed with me as something that, okay, wait a minute, there's got to be other places where you get a sense of meaning. I mean, obviously six kids, a job as a surgeon, that's, you know, a pretty demanding life as it is. Um, but to your point, I think the only way out of that, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of hours. He's only doing 35 hours a week. He okay. Says. Well, so, that's so he must already be good. doing sort yeah. of more like shift based. Like, yeah. So he's yeah. probably done with residency and all that craziness yeah. that comes with being a surgeon. And it's not trying to build up a, a, a you know, seven figure yeah. par- surgical partnership where you're doing, you're doing so 60 hours a week of surgery. Another, a good example of somebody I think who's been a surgeon who really has had this very diverse career is Atul Gawande. Sure. Um, you know, if you look, he's. Yeah. Done New York Times op eds. He's written multiple he's bestsellers. New York, he's a New Yorker guy. Yeah. We share an editor at the New Yorker. Yeah, actually. Yeah. And he's great. Um, I think he's a model for somebody like Chris to look at is okay, like what can I model from this? And then you know, what of- are other sort of tangential things that you can explore based on your background? Maybe it's teaching somewhere, maybe it's researching. Um, there's because I, I feel yeah. like when you have a specific, you know, very specialized knowledge like Chris probably does, there are probably numerous areas where you could go and apply that knowledge. I mean, so it sounds like when he says endurance sports do give my life some zest, it sounds like to me and I'm completely guessing here, Carl, that this was just a sort of, let's take a random stab yeah. at the rest of our life. Like, I don't know, I'll do triathlons. Whereas, you know, I talk about on the show, Carl, much more systematic about it. Uh, keystone habit first. Every bucket has a keystone habit you come back to just as a signal to yourself, I take this seriously. And I'm willing to come back to this again and again. And then giving a one to two month period per area where it is your focus for those two months, overhauling that part of your life, and then being willing to repeat that again and again as you're trying to do it. The other thing I will add, because I've been thinking about this for this book idea I'm working on, you need self-knowledge as the foundation of making changes. So maybe surgery is not for you. I mean, maybe you want to do something different. Maybe there's something about the hours or there's a, there's a stress to it. Okay, I could get that. But the self-knowledge on which you can make those type of big decisions 
the more you are out there actually pushing areas of your life that seem to matter and trying to cultivate those areas of your life, what you are doing is getting in touch with those intimations that come from within, from which you actually gain the real knowledge about what's important and not, and the meaning and the resilience with which you build your life. And the better in tune you are to those intimations, the better decisions you can make. Because yeah. otherwise, you're just going to, it's going to be random time, man. <laughs> it's going to be like, oh, I don't want to be a surgeon anymore. I've seen this so many times. I don't want to be a surgeon anymore. Um, I'm going to be whatever a triathlete podcaster and you just like, you know, you may make that change or something like that. You're like, this is what I'm going to do or, or I'm going to, I'm going to quit and go and teach, you know, high school science or this or that, but you're just swinging into the wind, man. Yeah. You, you, you want to be coming from a place of like, I understand what matters and what doesn't. And then when you, you know, like move to the farm in Vermont and do whatever, it's not random. It's like, you're doing it from the perspective totally. of like, okay, I have this really philosophies I feel seriously about, about how my kids should be raised and what's important in time. And I want to fix tractors or whatever it is. Uh, you're you're probably firing from the hip a little bit, so spend yeah, the time. I mean, that's that's yeah. a whole little bets concept, right? Even yeah. though we're talking about it in terms of creative work, like little bets are things you can apply to, you know, self knowledge as well. Blogcast.fm, little bit. That's a little <laughs> bit, right? The entire thing, my entire yeah. career has been a series of little bets. Yeah, no, it was literally just in 2009 hey, when you yeah. couldn't, you're having a hard time in the job market. Yeah, you didn't sit down and map out. Okay, so then. Ten years later is when we'll get the Series A round investment, and not even yeah. close. Yeah, <laughs> the irony was I started it all to try to find a job, and yeah, that was kind of ridiculous considering I've been fired from every job I had. But yeah, now you're now you're providing jobs. But yeah, <laughs> all right, I like that. That's a good question, Carl. Um, quick one, uh, Ivan. Ebooks or paper based books? You do no ebooks, right? I don't do ebooks because I find um, anything on a device incredibly distracting. I mean, I'm super ADD, so it's one of those things that, like, but I, even on a Kindle, there's nothing. I else, can't there's nothing else going on there. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what it is for the Kindle. Is I find it very difficult to retain things that I read on screens. Yes. Uh, and there's been research that proves this. Um, there, I don't remember the woman's name. I think her name, Marianne Wolf, wrote a sure. book about this called The Reading Mind or something like that. It had a squid, wasn't there? I know the book. Well, yeah. she had a great. She had a great book. Um, Proust, Proust yeah, and the yeah, Squid yeah. or something, yeah, all exactly. about, oh, I, what a great book. Yeah. Um, so tough. she talked about this. And so what happens when you're reading on a screen, whether it's, you know, Kindle, so think about an article you've read versus a book you've read. Like, I know way more about the books I've read, and I can talk to you about those for hours. If you asked me about articles I read, I couldn't tell you what I read yesterday on the yeah. internet. Um, and that's because we don't actually read when we're reading on screens, because we tend to scan, and we scan in this sort of F pattern, right, where yeah. you kind of just do... Like literally you read the top line, you read the middle, you read down, and then that's it. So you think you kind of get the gist of it, but you don't. And I found that almost all of the best writers I knew, Ryan Holiday, Danny Shapiro, people who had really poetic voices, they all swore by physical books. And after that, that was all, and it's a pain to carry around physical books. And I know this because my my, roommates, my wife gets mad at me about my this. My roommates are like, we're going to need a storage facility just for these damn books. And and they're still coming. Like the you know Ryan had to hire a special moving company for the books. Yeah, Ryan's Unrelated to the moving company. There's, no, Ryan's but there's, there's, there's companies massive. that do this. They're uh, library moving companies okay. that like, specialize in moving books. Because, yeah, yeah. I mean, and Ryan recently opened up a bookstore, so that should tell you how many books he has. I had to hire movers when I came into this office to get my books into <laughs> the office. also yeah. crazy. Okay, I'm with you, though, too. I will do e-books, though, Ivan, but I only do them when it's, I need this today. Yeah. That, so I will do that. I'm like, I'm working on a book, and uh, I'm writing a chapter, and I'm like, oh, I need to read uh, Marianne Wolf's Proust yeah. and the Squid. Like, I think I need that, and I need, and I need it today. I've got, I'm going to write. I'm going to go through it today because there, there's some stuff in there I need. And typically, it's when I know there's like three chapters I mm. need. But I will always do paper books if I can, otherwise, because of my 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 pencil and pen yeah. 
because I have my library out there. Every book in there you can pull off and see, yeah, exactly exactly what I marked. That's interesting. Um, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, mm-hmm. Ivan, if you want to see a good summary of Wolf's research on the F pattern, that's where I first encountered it, Yeah, is is the, he talks about it. And I wonder if I have an easier time with eBooks because I do a lot less like phone and tablet time than like yeah. if, I'm, if I'm compared to like a 23-year-old today or something. Probably, yeah. I might not have the same F pattern because I read my news in a paper newspaper, for example. Like mm-hmm. I don't do a ton. I don't read a ton on my screen except for like stuff I'm actually writing. So maybe, yeah. maybe I'm a little better there. Um, all right, Christiana, let's do, ooh, all right, I'll do two more questions here. So Christiana says, I'm intrigued with your working backwards career advice. You suggest to think of the life you want and work backwards to a career from that larger vision. Can you share tips on how to do this? I find that having a singular grand vision is very difficult for me to conceptualize. Uh, okay, this is good because I want to get Srini's opinion on this. It's um, <laughs> funny because I was like, this sounds like your domain, not mine. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you, you have an interesting backstory. Okay, yeah. so, so first of all, Christiane, or Christina, I'm sorry, not Christiana, Christina. Um, you're, I, the thing you're summarizing here is not exactly what I suggest, and this might help clarify things. So she's saying, I have a hard time finding a singular grand vision for my career, which yeah. I think is almost impossible to do. I mean, totally. there's some cases you can. You're like, okay, I, I'm, you know, um, I, I have a, an incredible athletic ability at a young age. I know I have a shot at the NBA. Okay, you can kind of have a grand vision of I want to get to this type of contract right. after whatever. Um, but what I was talking about and what you're you're talking about, Christina, is the working backwards is working backwards from lifestyle. That's the advice that I think you're picking up on. And it's something I wrote about years ago before So Good They Can't Ignore You came out. And I think I called that essay something like the most important piece of career advice no one ever told me or something like this. Uh, and the idea was, think about what you want your life to be like. Forget the content of the work for now, right? I mean, what is it that resonates with you when you hear stories of people and you read biographies? Is it, you think about a a, a simple life, when you read Wendell Berry, when you read like Bill McKibben up in his cabin in the Adirondacks writing the end of the day, is that what gets to you like I'm in nature and I have space and it's quiet and it's in the field and I'm with my kid or is it like this sort of hum of lost generation style I'm in a bar and it's like with other creative types and there's the energy of the city like really thinking about lifestyle are you master of the universe type like we're, we're making moves my my startup's going it's really growing or is it you know you're imagining something completely different like I'm working with you, you, you envision the lifestyle that causes resonance because your 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 body will respond to these sort of general images of lifestyle in a way that doesn't respond so much to a job description. It's a little harder. You're like, eh, I'm a senior social media brand manager. Like, "Eh, your body doesn't know physiologically what to think about that. And then that advice, Christina, was you work backwards and say, okay, what are the different paths to a lifestyle like that? And then you start trying to match actual, okay, what work is available to me? Oh, I see if I took this job and uh, at first it'd be kind of hard, but then if I can develop these skills, I could go over the consulting and cut the hours in half, and then I could move to Western Massachusetts, and then I could do the whatever. Like working backwards from the lifestyle is not the only way, obviously, to do career advice, but it is the opposite of what your worry is. So you don't need a singular grand vision of what's all going to happen. You're trying to identify lifestyle traits. Well, so I, I think the, the, there are two things that I found, um, you know, in this process. So uh, I think it was is. Tina Seelig, who told me, uh, and she's a professor at Stanford, she said, passion follows engagement. And the problem is, yeah. and you yourself said, you know, we put the cart before the horse when it comes to passion, because yeah. people actually start with a passion. They don't start with what they find engaging. Yeah. If I had done that earlier in my career, I probably would have been fired from every damn job I ever had, because I had this idea that I was passionate about all these things I actually hated doing. Yeah. 
And you mentioned job descriptions. I think that job titles are actually probably the worst thing because yeah. a job title, people say, oh, I want the title of senior oh, director. Oh, give us a turn. Oh. Yeah. Um, they're like, I want the title of senior director of something. And, but they don't think about what are you actually going to be doing in that job? Are yeah. you actually going to find your duties in that yeah. role engaging? Or I want to work for a sports marketing company. I get that a lot. Yeah. Like, you know what it means to work for a sports marketing company? What are you because, actually yeah. going to be doing there? It's not like you're going to be you're hanging, not in the out, dugout. With, yeah, you're you're dugout hanging out with LeBron James <laughs> or sitting courtside yeah. with Jack Nicholson at the Lakers game. You're doing you do that when you own an NBA team, which is my next goal, yeah. by the way, which is the only reason I'm doing any of this. So you're doing lifestyle-centric <laughs> career planning. You're like, okay, the yeah. lifestyle I envision involves being courtside at the Lakers and you're working backwards. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not even courtside. We were joking. I remember we, the Milwaukee Bucks won the championship this year and I was roommate and he was like yeah, when we sit in courtside i was like courtside is where the poor people sit we're gonna sit in the owner's box <laughs> exactly yeah. it's like that's where the poor people like artists and musicians sit yeah those are the five thousand dollar seats come <laughs> exactly. on with the fifty thousand exactly. dollar box come on yeah. um so no but I, the thing is that we never think about that whole idea of what we find engaging so i discovered that in the process of building unmistakable i didn't this wasn't my job i actually literally worked as a social media manager at uh, an online travel company but what i started to notice was that uh, I would just do this thing with these interviews. I was like, wow, I'm like, I get up at six in the morning and I do this. Nobody pays me to do this. I'm not making any money doing this. Yeah. Why am I doing this? And it's because I find the process engaging. And so what ends up happening is if you find something engaging, you're going to stick with it. If you stick with it, you start to develop rare and valuable skills. Then yeah. you go from that to mastery. So it's basically passion follows engagement and meaning follows mastery. And so what I would say is when you're looking for opportunities or when you're doing different things is to above all things, pay attention to what you find engaging and then start to figure out, you know, where are the different places where I can incorporate all of those things? Cause this pattern of, yeah. you know, expressing my creativity using technology, because people at the core of what I do, when they ask me, what do you do? I say, I use the internet to make things. And I've been doing that ever since college. My default question, anytime I see a new piece of technology or a new app is what can I make using this? And I'd realize what I find truly engaging is using technology to make things. Yeah. It wasn't podcasting per se. Podcasting is a byproduct yeah. of that well, idea. You built that original blog and yeah. MP3 files up there. And yeah. yeah. So yeah. that to me is, is really where I would go. I mean, that that's the one thing I think I was not told. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, if you mismatch talent in an environment, you're inevitably going to get lousy performance. And this is where corporate America falls apart in my mind because they put people on performance improvement plans they never question whether the person is in the job in the right first in the right job in the first place. I know this because I've been put on my fair share of pers- you know, performance improvement plans. Yeah, and so they're mismatching talent and environment where sometimes that same person, if you put them in a different role, yeah. would absolutely thrive. Yeah, yeah. Find find a role that matches. All right. So, um, gut in this sense, then, it, and it's not gut again. All of this comes back from it's not necessarily the specific content of the work, but yeah. the, but the gut about this type of thing engages me or not. But this type of job engages me. That that's the part I will add is the sort of very non-job specific gut. And and my my example from my life as leaving undergrad and and I wrote an op-ed about this. This was way back when so good the Kent came out. I wrote like a New York Times op-ed about this New York Times piece about deciding between grad school or Microsoft. So I was a computer science guy and I had the job offer from Microsoft and I had the sort of the, the MIT grad school and Microsoft would offer you money and, and you know, MIT would not offer you that much money. Um, and, but the thing that really, and so I talked about that, but the thing that kind of took over there was my gut was the lifestyle of a more busy corporate job the, the like, let's hustle, let's roll. Like we got a product going out there. Let's like kill it in the marketplace it just didn't feel right. 
You know, I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know, I feel stressful. If I don't want someone telling me what to do. And so I went with the grad school job entirely from a lifestyle perspective, for the most part, of I think I would have a lot more freedom. And I remember having the thought, I could probably keep writing a lot easier if I had a lot more freedom. So it was just the, the feel for like what I was looking for. I wanted a more autonomous life where I had more free time and I could kind of pursue projects and not have to get up early and necessarily work long hours or put on a tie or something like that. And it was just a feel about the lifestyle. So I guess, Christina, both of these things would come back to um, you don't need a singular grand vision for how everything's going to unfold. No. And and so you can, you can think about what is it that's actually engaging you. Passion will follow engagement. Great notion. Definitely so good that Kangnori talks about it. And I'm saying focus on lifestyle too. Uh, if you want this type of, I want the the family and I want to be in a suburb and I have these memories of my childhood I want to recreate, that's going to put you on a very different path in another way. It is, in other words, it's the lifestyle, the lifestyle insight can help give you an intelligent way to shape the professional choices you make and then how to go forward and how not to get in the trap. And well, don't take this promotion, go over here because what you really need is the autonomy from this skill, not the more income because the autonomy is going to help you hit this lifestyle better. Or no, I want the box seats at the at the Bucks game, so I have to I have to go for the promotion because that's what's going to get me there. Uh, I hear that. Um, all right, so one last one last question, kind of a deep life question. So, so Srini, you did you were on a reality show, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, uh, real CEOs of whatever. No, but you were on the show Indian Matchmaking. It was a Netflix series. Yeah. Um, tell us what we don't know about how reality TV works. So this, I mean, because it had the it had the typical beats yeah. of like talking head, like a mix between verites, so like showing things happening and then talking heads or something like that. Yeah. I, I'm just curious in the nuts and bolts. Yeah, well, it's funny. So you know, you and I are here in DC, and and I'm here because I met a girl, not because of the show, kind of indirectly, and she's sitting here in the office. With, so she and I watched. Yeah, we, we should say, Rennie is. Yeah, we we <laughs> we do have another person in the room, who's yeah. like basically in the peanut gallery here. Yeah, but, um, this is this she is the mo- we've broken re-watch. the record for the most people in the studio at once. By the way, with three, she had me rewatch the show a year later because because you know, like, I you know didn't want to see it again. I was done with it. I'm like, all right, you know what? I lived through this experience, and now I've seen it on TV once, and I had to deal with you know being inundated with all sorts of strange questions for about you know, three, four weeks afterwards. But there are a lot of things that you don't see. The first is that everything in reality TV is made by editing. Mm -hmm. Um, The job of a reality TV producer is not to showcase reality. Reality is pretty mind-numbing. You know, if people just sat here and recorded, you know, you and I hanging out for the afternoon, you know, like if me coming to your house, people are like, well, that's pretty boring. But if somebody took it and basically clipped different, you know, sections together in segments, they could tell a story that isn't entirely true. So how much were you filmed? Because I, I, I vaguely remember this show, there's probably just like two events involving yeah, so you. There's like, like a date or major two events. Or there's something. a date yeah. and there's a meeting with the girl's parents. Yeah. Um, and so, so... they filmed those. They filmed those. Right. And the thing that I was really cognizant of is that I already had a public presence. And so I thought to myself, like, okay, this could be a nightmare if I'm not careful. Um, because I knew that they can do anything they want with the editing. But the thing is, all uh, they can use is what you give them. So we weren't getting authentic Srini necessarily. You were getting we Srini yeah. being mindful of the fact that, wait a minute, a lot of people are going to see this potentially. I don't I don't want to act like an idiot. Yeah. Um, so you know, I called my dad, and he's like, when I found out I was meeting this girl's parents, he said, be polite. I was like, that's the advice you can give me as somebody with a PhD? I was like, that's useless. So then I called my cousin in India, and she, you know, she lives here, but she said, okay, tell you what. She said, don't give too many specifics. Be vague if the matchmaker asks you questions. And then she gave me the most priceless piece of advice when it came to dealing with the matchmaker. She said, do what you do best. Interview her. So when they put me in the ride-along with the matchmaker, 
I went in thinking, lady, I'm a conversational wizard. You're not going to get anything out of me. I don't want to tell you. Yeah. And I just peppered her with questions for 45 minutes yeah. to the point where she could only ask one question and I gave her a very vague answer. Um, so that was one big thing because I had a cousin who's okay. a media attorney and I asked him, I said, you know, here's the media release. Can you look at it? He said, look, he's like, this is a standard release. It doesn't matter what the release says. Anybody can make you look like an idiot in editing. Your job is to give them zero ammo yeah. they can do that with. Yeah. So, okay. So, but then nuts and bolts wise. So they, they film, there's certain events where they're filming. Yeah. Do you have to do talking head stuff? You do it, a little bit of talking right. head stuff, but. So what, for you, it wasn't a huge no. amount of time. No, it wasn't. Because this was pretty condensed. Like yeah. we want you, it was near where you already lived or. No, actually I had to fly to Houston. You had to fly to Houston, but yeah. they said in like a couple days, yeah. like you, you go on this date and there's just cameras to sit standing there, I totally, guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you're going to do this right along with the mask. Yeah, I mean, okay. it was all in one day. So and then, and then come to a studio, Friday. come to a studio and do some talking heads or no studio. Everything was all on uh, various on-site locations. So I think I did. Um, yeah, I mean, everything was on. So I flew in on a Friday night. Um, this was another one of those weird things. They didn't even tell me who I was going to meet until I got there on Friday night. Yeah. Uh, and then the next morning they started filming, I think at 11 o'clock, we were done by about six or seven and, the thing that's interesting is if you go back and watch it, and we noticed this, yeah, I, I didn't notice this, Rini did yesterday, she pointed it out to me, there's a lot of scenes in there where if you look, the way it was cut, you're like, this is the same, seg like it, it was like they filmed certain people talking for an hour, yeah. and then they put those segments on and clipped them onto other parts where they actually didn't happen the way that they filmed. So that's the other thing. Nothing happens in the order that you actually see it in. So like if they were showing the date, yeah, they're going to... Mix max the order just to get away. And they'll add yeah. things in that weren't actually. So, for right. example, there's somebody there's could writers, say something. Right? Reality shows have writers. They have editors and writers. You so figure out what's the what's the art. What, the yeah. job of a reality TV producer is not to basically showcase reality; it's to entertain their audience, just yeah. like the job of a podcaster. Yeah. So, you once you understand that, you realize their job is to create a narrative, and so they could film something that has absolutely nothing to do with what has just been shown on screen. And they could say, you know what, let's add that little soundbite where this girl says this onto that, even though it had nothing to do with that and wasn't even related to that. But you were probably, it seems to me it must be different today versus 20 years ago. Yeah. Because everyone is so used to being filmed and documented and self-documented and it being presented and context collapse and all of this, that it must be harder. I don't know if it's hard to do reality shows as a producer these days, but everyone is so aware. Yeah. Like, well, oh, I get this, yeah, camera, I'm used to being on cameras <laughs> and like, I don't know what context this will be put in and... I don't necessarily think that's entirely true. Entirely I true. think it's yeah. because you and I are public figures. Yeah. You and I are hyper aware of how well, we come across. Well, you, you came across, right? What's your, your opinion? Amy? I mean, he, he came across well, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, he basically was edited into a, like a non, like they, I mean, they were able you to, were, they made you into a backdrop against which this other character could, yeah, you know, pretty much. That's what I think they were interested in was making this other character a good TV. Yeah. So you, you were like just a, like, oh, he's like a very reasonable person. They, they weren't trying to execute a storyline about you of like, look at this person has X and Y. Yeah, no, not at all. You're I mean, the they straight didn't man. really do any, yeah, I, you know, in a lot of ways yeah. I kind of was neglected. I mean, I think now. It's not I'm a bad starting, outcome. <laughs> yeah, no, I, trust me. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I met her because of it. So that all worked out kind of well. Yeah. Um, no, the, the thing that I realize now looking back, you know, when I was watching it was how often the matchmaker completely ignored everybody's actual preferences. It was just like, let me give you all my preferences and then 
And then she's like, let me match you with a person who's the exact opposite. Yeah, it doesn't give you a lot, lot of confidence in that profession. Sort of, no, not at all. And then there's a lot of other sort of mystical nonsense, you know, just new age nonsense yeah. where you have like face readers and palm readers and all these people who just seem to be making things up that I'm like, wait a minute, a face reader? Like what qualifies this guy to be a face reader? Like you can't go to college and get oh, a PhD right. in there face was. reading. Bring people in. And, yeah, yeah. and I was like, okay, this guy's not a social scientist who studied facial expressions in labs, you know. This is completely like so. Those kinds of things were literally put there primarily to make it entertaining, is yeah, what I think. Now. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. Now they the, in this instance they let the matchmaker do her work, and then they would ask the persons that she found, "Would you be willing to also be filmed?" Or was there a separate cast? So because she's not really matchmaking. I no, guess. No. Yeah. So the cast they picked all in advance, oh. and you know because it was really strange. So what's the matchmaker do? Am I revealing the trade secrets here? I'm revealing trade secrets. This is no, I'm gonna get you sued. Get you that sued most by people Netflix. don't already yeah. know, right? Is that we're beginning to have a lot of questions about her credibility? Yeah, because one, you know, nobody from the show actually was successfully matched. Not yeah. one. Yeah. Every person was matched with people they were incompatible with. What's the background rate, though? This is what I want to know. What percentage of people going to Indian matchmakers actually end up successfully matched? Because the background rate might be really low. That uh, yeah. That's a good question. We don't know. I mean, yeah. I, well, so here's the funny thing, right? So they show this scene at the beginning where she's like going through all these things, like, you know, preferences and, you know, all these different things. And she's like, oh, I've done a thousand matches. I'm like, if you had done a thousand matches, the way that you approach this would have been much more systematic. I mean, you and I are systems thinkers. Yeah. Like, I literally was thinking, I was like, wait a minute, you would, even if you weren't using an algorithm, you would have a way of making sure the people in the database that you match with each other yeah. have a high chance of compatibility. Maybe she just counts as match like I literally just got them to do a thing. <laughs> I mean, or, or maybe she did six million attempts, right? So you don't know the DOM. That's true. That's, we, that's we're missing thing. a lot yeah, of context. We're, we're, we're missing like Out of those, I've done yeah. a thousand, six million attempts. Yeah. I've done a thousand matches exactly. that were successful. It's like having a, a really yeah. bad shooting percentage or like batting <laughs> average at baseball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Though, okay, one, one last thing about the unrelated specifically to the show. Oh, yeah. is I'm sure you saw working on this, you know, being involved in a show that the 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 overhead of that just cost wise must have been huge, right? Like all these, uh, or do they have it down more? Because I, I I went down a rabbit hole of reality TV production, yeah. And like I know uh, Discovery, part of their profitability is they got the number down to about four hundred thousand four hundred thousand dollars per hour, okay, to their production costs. As they, as they really got those type of cameras journey, I think they got down to a very small. Yeah. crew and probably maybe that's what you're seeing with the Netflix. Well, it, de it depends on on kind of the nature of the content, right? So if you think about Indian matchmaking, overall you're working with a cast that's completely free. So that costs you nothing. Yeah. Crew. Uh, it's just crew. crew. Your crew yeah. is basically what costs you money and they're all basically contractors. Um the sets are all paid for, so you're not paying for locations ever. Maybe you you know people got paid for the the locations got paid somehow. Um but Come to think of it, you know, you, my date was an axe throwing date. I don't remember even seeing the name of the axe throwing place. Yeah, but it's in probably that's full time. But it's full time. You know, you have these editors, yeah. these uh, these cameramen, these whatever for a, a, probably a, a twelve month production run or something. That are it's like salary and benefits. Yeah, so, I kind of yeah. wonder how much. I, I for Indian matchmaking, I don't know. I but do they, I know they might that, have hired local crews and, yeah, and done the whole you game. You can definitely yeah. do a lot of things on a budget in a way you couldn't before. Uh, because I, right after, I think pre-Indian matchmaking, just for fun, I took a do I took Ken Burns' documentary filmmaking class on uh, Masterclass, and I decided to make a documentary about the women in my family because yeah. um, they're all amazing cooks who make the most delicious food with no recipes. So I just made this you know documentary short called Zero Recipes, and I shot the whole thing with an iPhone. I used a couple yeah. of microphones, 
And the production quality was surprisingly good. So I, I thought to myself, wow, basically a lot of the documentaries I see are just talking heads, but they're edited really well. So a lot of the magic in almost all of this comes down to editing. Yeah. Well, and, and so this is my theory, my, my sort of media, future media theory, is the the interesting bifurcation we're going to see going forward and sort of this age of streamers is that we're going to see things pushed to both extremes. Yeah. So there's there's obviously a huge market for the the $4 million an hour production cost shows. So these are the prestige shows that mm -hmm. the the big streamers can put their money into, right? The the Game of Thrones or Ozarks or things where it's it's really high quality prestige series done with really good people. And there's obviously a market for it and it scales right and yeah. and, and if you're Disney Plus or something you can you can make a living with these Star Wars shows and stuff like that and these totally. Marvel shows, yeah. The the what was below that before was the Discovery sort of $400,000 an hour production cost reality show. And I think that is what's that middle is going to go away because now you have the $1,000 an hour mm -hmm. uh, bottom up entertainment, right? So now I can get a pretty good, I can get good camera, I can get good editing, I can get production values that roughly approach what you see in, you know, uh, Indian matchmaking or, or in a Discovery Channel show. Like it's not that too hard you have one staff and you can get a pretty good camera with a good lens and get the right lighting and it's not so bad and now you have this inc incredible competitive field of exploring every niche pulling up talents that never would have been discovered before and i just think the shows that, are, that were being produced to fill that niche for discovery or whatever yeah. uh you know they're okay like every once in a while you get a real spark of talent like you get the the uh the uh, what's that show, The Fixer Upper, right? Like where, where there's like a good spark of talent yeah. with that, you know, and then the, it really takes off or whatever. But I just think when you, you can basically approach the production values at $1,000 an hour production cost or something, yeah. and you can have 20,000 people taking a swing, then you're going to get like out of that more of these Fixer Upper type talent pairs. And it's, it's the death. I mean, this is the problem with, I think, the Discovery Plus streaming channel is, yeah, you have all this reality content to push through push through the channel, but I think long tail streaming is going to eat that up because it's going to be, you know, someone like you or someone like me that has a show that doesn't cost nearly that much, but it looks pretty good. And we have an audience that likes what we're doing. And then there's 50 of us that it doesn't work. But, and, and so that's what I think. Well, I think that what you're speaking to is, is the complete fragmentation of the media landscape. Yeah. This is why anytime somebody who I hear about, who's an interviewer is like, Oh, I want to be the next Oprah. I was like, okay, one, that's a terrible goal because it's, literally impossible for anybody to be the next Oprah because yeah. what ended up happening is technology completely fragmented the media landscape. Um, I remember I, I gave a talk to a big media company. I, I think it was Meredith Corp or whatever it is. Like they own a bunch, I think Better Homes and Gardens, like all those types of magazines. Yeah. And I told them, I said, you know, the thing that you guys have to deal with, the biggest threat to big media companies um, who have unlimited resources are individual creators with limited resources, but unlimited resourcefulness and imagination yeah. and tools that are damn near free at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, Steven Soderbergh did a film using nothing but an iPhone. He shot an entire yeah, film. Yeah, just to do. Yeah. 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 And so the fact that like a Hollywood director is shooting a film with an iPhone, that tells you, and then, then you know, layer onto that as artificial intelligence becomes better and better. And yeah. we're starting to see it finally getting to a point where some of the things it's doing are kind of amazing. You know, with GPT-3, I think, we're spitting out landing pages and the copy is surprisingly good. Like even if you don't use the landing page itself, we've done that where we literally did the entire course landing page using nothing but AI. I wrote all the module descriptions using AI. I didn't write any yeah. of them. Yeah. And other than, you know, making some tweaks to the landing page. So the copy flowed almost all of it was done by an AI. Now we're doing that with copy. Imagine what happens when you get to a point where we don't need actors anymore. We can model an AI to create the voice of the actor, to mimic the movements, 
And at that right. point, like in Roadrunner, like in the Bourdain documentary, yeah. they, they used to model for his voice. Well, the yeah. idea really, if you think about it, there's going to be a certain point at which it's not going to be technical proficiency when it comes to tools. It's going to be your ability to conceive what's a mat, what's possible. Yes, with exactly. Tools. And then, and again, going back to our original discussion early in the show, that does not mean that the riches are going to be democratized. Yeah. It means that the talent filtering is going to be democratized. Which in the end for consumers, I think is good because now we're taking a swing on a hundred thousand different people trying to do interviews. You're going to end up with five interviewers that are a lot better than it's 30 years ago. You're like, okay, one of the six late night shows has an opening. Like, okay, is Craig Ferguson available? (laughs) There's like, there's like six comedians. You're like, I don't know. Let's just try one of these. And now, and now it's going to, yeah, we're going to get a shot and you're going to get the niche, which, which I think will be a little bit more democratizing that you can have a niche that, the, the example I point to, there's a couple examples I point to, um, Adam Savage and Tested.com, right? So he is, well, it was one of the Mythbusters. It, it's like a channel, and it's they, it's DIY making stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's like an audience for that. And it's the production values are great. I think they have five people in, in, on the staff. They've got a nice headquarters in San Francisco. They've got some, a, you know, one good camera guy and a good editor. And it's great, right? I mean, people subscribe to it. I want to see people building things. And then you have Steve Rinella's Meat Eater. So he had like this hunting show. Uh, and he's compelling. And now he has his own basically media channel and they mm-hmm. got a bunch of investment and they filmed their own TV shows. Yeah. Like, here's our show. This is a show about fishing and we have drone cameras and whatever. And, and they're not paying that much to produce it. And they have another show where they bought 40 acres up in upstate Michigan. Like we're going to convert this into a wildlife preserve or something. And they made a reality show on it. And I bet they're doing a 10th of the cost of a, of a discovery yeah. channel show. So yeah, I think, I think we're going to get niches. Um, we're going to get niches and talent filtering. And so you're going to have, you know, the Mandalorian, and you're going to have, you know, productivity hour with <laughs> Cal Newport or whatever, <laughs> or whatever. And, and, but what you're not going to have in between anymore is, you know, uh, like an animal planet show where it right. follows some vets who like try really hard to be animated in their camera talk or whatever. All right. Well, we've got, we've gone asunder. This is neither of our expertise, but Srini, I really appreciate you to actually coming by the actual HQ. Yeah. Uh, as I, I told you before you came on, we're about one week away from having the cameras turned on. So, so unfortunately we're not going to have, you know, uh, we're not going to have the the beautiful film. Uh, well, the, I, I'd rather day, people know the sound of my voice anyway. That's so. right. People people know what you look like now, anyways. Yeah. So, so before <laughs> once the Cal Newport Productivity Hour and Variety Show gets going, then you'll be then, having me back yeah. as a guest so people can see my face. See your face, yeah. But you're going to have to bring a talent. But, okay. But you know, it's just about ratings. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And a matchmaker is going to be here. I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's a good angle, you know. And totally. The, and the face reader. So we'll be yeah. good. Yeah. All right, Trini. Thanks. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Cal. All right, that was fun. It's nice to have another voice in here help me answer your questions. I'll be back on Thursday. Just little old me answering your questions alone. But thanks to Srini for helping out today. Go to calnewport.com slash podcast to find out how to submit your own questions. And until next time, stay deep.